This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Nubians. Uh, I'm going to head over to the chat in a second. Uh, hey, Dr. Carr, how hey, are you? Professor oh. Hunter, I'm yeah. fine. Can you give me an update? I'm not an update. I saw something you posted in social media. I'm afraid this versus thing has gotten out of hand. Now it just seems to be a capitalist gra cash grab. Because as far as I'm concerned, there's, there's none better than Shaka Khan. But apparently something tragic happened last week. I, I mean, I, I didn't see it, obviously. <laughs> this, this unfor uh, unfortunately, we're we're in the um, social structure because yes. we're live in YouTube. So I'd rather save that for the governance structure. Okay, we well, we, we can talk about it. We, we can talk, talk about, about it on office hours on Monday yeah. because, yeah. you know, I was thinking Um, uh, before I came in, I was finishing up um, King Richard on HBO mm. Max. And in the first three minutes, um, I'm just smiling. There's a scene where Richard Williams, played by Will Smith, who actually, I think, did a pretty admirable job of capturing the cadence and the flow of Richard Williams. That's good to hear personality he's driving in that van with his daughters and they pass by a cemetery and he beeps the horn beep 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 hi hi say say hi to the people not here say hi to the people that are gone and then the girl say hi people that are people that are gone yeah and it just reminds me of the space that we're in now you know that we're here because of the people that were gone the people that that are no longer here our ancestors and you brought that to this space. We have gathered here today um, in that vein. Uh, and that I just want to just take a moment at the top because watching this, the first 40 minutes, you already know um, as anyone that's a parent or anyone that's not you know, raising children, but raising themselves, that you have to see a thing to be a thing. And that commitment to uh, exposing his daughters and his wife exposing his their daughters to uh, beautiful homes and giving them, planting in them the seeds of, of success and excellence, that they're going to be the best and that that they're going to be champions and just keep keep it in front of them, even though, like he said, I may be disrespected, but my children never will be. And I feel collectively as a people, you know, we're not doing this for right now. And there's a lot of stuff going on in the world right now. We just had that horrible uh, OJ Simpson-like sham of a trial that, you know, resulted in a, a verdict that we all knew was going to happen, but some people are still shocked. It's like, you know, you could know things are going to happen, but until it actually happens, your feelings are now uh, at the forefront. We got another trial in Georgia. Uh, and and it just keeps to be, it seems to be this constant attack and assault on our psyche. But I want us to remember in this space that we're not doing what we're doing here today for today. Right. We're not dealing with today. We're through Dr. Carr's infinite wisdom and brilliance, we are remembering who we've always been. Mm. And then I just want us to, you know, in the vein of watching this Richard Williams thing, he reminded me that, you know, first and foremost, we got to protect ourselves, our hearts, our minds, our spirits, our community. Then, then we got to like, you know, spend a little time uh, electing, you know, we got to protect and we got to elect the folk. For those of us who live in a place, everyone lives somewhere, elect the people that you, you know, that are going to protect Come on. You know, your community and your so like we got to show up, got to show up for juries. We got to show up, vote for judges. We got to show up, vote for uh, prosecutors and attorney generals and and people that are going to and mayors that are going to set forth policy because we're still a land of laws, even though there's a lot of lawlessness. And then I just want to get to it. And then we got to reject 
Um, and this is getting to this versus thing, all the things that um, that are spoiling, you know, that are that are not really showing who we are. You know, so we 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 vote with our eyeballs. We vote with our dollars and everything that, you know, from the liquor you put in your body to the, you know, the, the point. I'm not judging anybody. I'm saying that everything we do is is, is an affirmation of who we are. That's and right. and so, you know, we we can't we can no longer be lukewarm or wishy-washy about this. You can't expect respect if you yourself are not doing that. And then finally, we got to reflect that, that very thing, you know, mm. the way in which we carry ourselves out in the world. And I just was thinking about this, watching this Richard Williams thing, because, you know, you can say a lot of things about that man. And I got to spend some time with him. Uh, and he's very complicated. He was very complicated, very interesting, oh, interesting. human being. Um, yeah. Uh, Leland Hardy, who uh, was an agent for Master P back in the day, speaks fluent Chinese. Uh, we were going to do a project together, so I got you know I got to go to the open and sit, <laughs> you know and sit with Richard wow. Williams, and you know, but the vision that that man has had from day one, even when he couldn't see it from for himself. I'm glad that they did this movie, and I hope everybody watches it just for the lessons that we can take with us. So I just wanted to just say that from the top. I know we got a lot to talk about Malcolm X. Uh, um, there's just so much, there's just so much, but I just want to thank you for this space, Dr. Carr, because the vision of it couldn't have happened had we not, um, mm. come together during this pandemic and had the world not been on fire, both with a pandemic and George Floyd and, you know, um, and giving us time to sit in it, to, to know that this is the path forward. We got to remember who we are from way back before mm -hmm. 1619. Mm. And then we have to create the world we want to live in and not center whiteness, not center, you know, trauma, not center all of these things that we're inundated with, but center who we see ourselves as. So I'm, I'm just going to say that and step out. Well, no, don't go anywhere. This is, uh, listen, listen, thank you. We, in fact, we wouldn't be here if you hadn't made this space. And so I'm, I'm grateful that we all get to be here together and that we continue to grow it, realizing that it was brought into existence at, because of the circumstances. And now that and it's, it's, it really is something to, to be living in and living through, isn't it? Um, there's this struggle by the pre-COVID structure to try to reimpose itself. There is a visceral rejection. Uh, of that attempt by so many people people are just rejecting it no i'm not going back to work the way i oh you, oh you gonna make me go no problem i'll quit wait wait what what just happened okay okay fine fine y'all can you know you can go but there's this tussle and some things uh we we never and i remember early on last year we we had a conversation about the the power of the pause. And I look back now at all of our conversations and the ones that are continuing to develop and branch out and grow, including the um, everything from rooms, medicine chest to all the rooms in narrative where folks are finding each other and building everything from growing and developing our own capacity to feed ourselves to building a new world out to the the dreams that we have that we want to reduce to creative art with from comics to filmmaking everything that is that is just growing and and when you compare that to the struggle um by some of the elements of the pre-covid world to either reimpose the old way which is not coming back 
that doesn't mean that the old way is gone, you know, and, 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 and uh, shout out to Judge Turnham Luke's Bruce Schroeder, the captain of the Keith Cow from being convicted clan. Um, he's resting easy today. Uh, I'm sure there'll probably be some celebrations in the future scheduled with he and maybe some of the jurors, if not all of them and the Rittenhouse family. Um, shout out to them. Shout out to them, really. Um, because they did us a great service. As John Henry Clark used to say, <laughs> the best Pan-Africanist in the world is a New York City cab driver who ain't black. Because he ain't going to pick you up whether you're from the Caribbean, Africa, while you're on the corner arguing about you ain't from Africa or you ain't from the Caribbean, the cab driver going to pass out three of y'all. Just shout out to Bruce for reminding us. And, and, and I do want to say one thing about the verses, and I want to shout out Stephanie Mills. Yeah, no question. Stephanie Please. Mills, who demonstrated what 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 community should look like when when one of us is trying. And, and shout out to Shaka Khan's manager who did not demonstrate community because you know mm. Uh, mm. your job is not to protect your bag but protect this queen, this diva. You, this, you know, oh, uh, like if you gotta throw your whole body on her and roll her off the stage and pull a hamstring doing it. That's what you need to do. But mm. Stephanie Mills was in the paint hard. So I just want to say that for the social structure, that that's what community looks like. You're going to protect at all costs and you're going to make sure you cover the multitude of whatever's happening. That's, that's right. not, you know, it's all. No, no, no. That's that's very important. In fact, uh, the brother who wrote the lyrics uh, actually did the book for the Wiz and his name escapes me at the moment. Um, You know, these categories that we developed, and when I say we, I mean primarily um, my high school students in Philadelphia Freedom Schools, and then over the last 20 years, uh, really the momentum started there in Philadelphia, and then workshopping it semester after semester with the students at Howard, and then in the various spaces. And now here, as we see people begin to think with, think through, and think beyond those categories, and really help us. We understand that though that Africana studies framework is simply an attempt to create space for us to think with each other. And it is rooted in the absolute purpose of Africana studies, which is to, um, to offer our intellectual work, our collective intellectual work for the liberation of our people, not to comb through archives and find interesting stories about black people to serve up to white publishers and university presses for the advancement of individual careers. I mean, that can be useful uh, for individuals and useful for the little clubs they're in in the social structure, but ultimately that's not Africana studies. But I mean, that's neither here nor there. I'm just putting that as a footnote. But one of the things that we know, we know if and when these categories are useful, these six categories and the questions that come with them, even as they bleed into each other and inform each other, we know it's useful when we recognize them. We recognize them operating in the lives of our people. That's the whole point. Wasn't to create a theory that, you know, could say, well, Greg Carcrick, mm -mm. you'll never hear me say me in that regard. It's we, 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 we workshop this and, and, and it's we throughout time and space. So when I think about the brother who wrote the book, for the whiz and by the book i mean the broadway book the, the lyrics uh the lyricist um of course stephanie mills didn't write the lyrics to home but you know when when you hear it you hear the governance structure you know the whole concept of the whiz in fact is really about the governance structure I'm not thinking about the 1939 production of the wizard of oz with uh 
is Judy Garland. Not thinking about even the Frank L. Baum books, which are really futuristic books. The, the, the major tome after tome after tome after tome. And they have somewhere in this collection, I got several of them and a, and a book that was written, actually a couple of books, written on the meaning of the Wizard of Oz, which in some ways, you know, some scholars, I think taking a little bit of license, but it is an intriguing thesis that they advance, um, use the Wizard of Oz, both the film and the bound books as a lens through which to critique modern world culture. So the Tin Man, you know, some of these scholars interpret the Tin Man as the working people who are now pushed into the factories, who are now forced to work. And then the what they need is someone to regulate this labor so that they don't kill themselves in these factories. And of course, with the uh, creation through the labor movement in the United States and beyond the working movement, international working movement of the eight hour day, the lunch break, moving the child labor laws, what has been imposed on capitalism, what has been imposed on the owners of those factories, time. So what does the 10 man get? A clock. A mm. heart. The heart represents the clock. I mean, these are these scholars reading into Baum and then reading into the film. And you know, now the farmers are about to get pushed out because industrialization is getting ready to wipe out the farm. This is as early as 1939 now. We were 10 years into the Great Depression in the United States, the Global Depression. Roosevelt is president. We're going to talk about Roosevelt again. Maybe in the end we talk about Thanksgiving for a minute, just for a minute. But, you know, the scarecrow is the dumb farmer. So what is the scarecrow going to have to do? You have to get an education. So what does he get? He doesn't get a brain. He already had a brain. What he gets is licensure. What does what Oz give him? A rolled up piece of paper. And all of a sudden he realizes I had this brain all along. Yeah, but you didn't have a degree. I mean, so it's fascinating how they interpret wow. this thing. Now, of course, uh, the United States is a settler state made up of European invasion in this hemisphere between the Spanish, Dutch, French, Portuguese, and the last in the worst, who were the and the worst in many ways, the most brutal. Although if you come back in 50 or 100 years, you may see that the Spanish actually won out in the colonial piece. But at any rate, uh, the English, for the time being, we are speaking in English. Well. Where is that in the Wizard of Oz? Well, the old empire lost all its colonies. That would be the cowardly lion. And so you're not ever coming back. You know what I'm saying? I were king of the forest. Yeah, you ain't king no more. But I tell you what, we're going we gonna to massage your ego. What do you get? A medal. We'll give you a little medal. Y'all still obsessed with the queen and king, right? And who Meghan Markle and little Archie and all that old. Yeah, that's medals. You know what I'm saying? Because it's gone, particularly if you're keeping up with what's going on in Europe right now. And then, of course, you got the white girl. <laughs> want to go home. I want to go back to the Rittenhouse uh, homestead. I'm Wait. Ooh, sorry. I want to go back to Kansas, <laughs> to the heartland. You know, that's all I want. Now, they go to the city to Oz. And what do they find out about Oz? Oz is a fraud. Is this a critique of modernism? But guess what? They can't see it because in the words of Malcolm X, who our brother, who you quote, who you've mentioned a couple of times, Tom Burrell, at the beginning of his book, Brainwashed, Tom Burrell, ironically, opens his introduction with Malcolm X. You've been misled. You've been had. You've been took. You've been bamboozled. You've been muck. You've been led astray. If you ever been to the Nation of Islam meeting, you know, you've been had. You've been took. Well, they went to the city looking for something that they already had, in the words of uh, Kansas, uh, the, the rock and roll man, Kansas. I never really did get nothing to the tin man. 
that he didn't didn't already have didn't give nothing to the ten man. Of course, you know Kansas uh, takes its logo from John Brown, which is a whole nother thing. We talked about John Brown over in, in Nubia, but it's interesting because when they get there, they don't realize because they've been had, they've been took, they've been bamboozled, they've been run them up, they've been led astray. Which living creature figures out that this is some BS? The dog. <laughs> because the dog can't read the dog can't oh the dog is like what y'all looking at oh no that's the <laughs> so the dog goes straight for the dude at which point the guy has Jacob Carruthers 1972 science and oppression a reserve theory of progress y'all peeped out the head okay here's a clock for you here's a rolled up piece of paper for you here's some medals for you or you want to go home and shit me too let's go Oh man! Anyway, that's the scholars writing. <laughs> so wait, uh, you got me here looking up the lyrics to "Home," the no, one home, that's definitely different. This is different. it is no, no. So go continue. Say, say no, no, more. No, go ahead, go ahead, Professor. I'm, just, I'm stunned right now because I've never, I've never processed it. You know, we watch these things and we just yeah. watch them. This what get, said, right? Know, this what your friend said. Oh, <laughs> we just watched them. And there's a scene in um King Richard where he makes them watch Cinderella. I'm giving away too much. But really? you know, they, they, it, I mean, if you no, you know it's, it's interesting though. What oh, did you learn? But he's forcing his daughters to have to think about the lessons and the things that they're watching. You know, of course, Cinderella's trash, but the fact that uh, you know, that these parents force their little girls to have to think about what what did you just watch what did you learn from this do we ask that of our children today but you just did that to me and i'm like now looking at the lyrics i'm like <laughs> through through the governance structure reading home now has a whole new a whole now when i listen to stephanie mills sing that it's no gonna have a whole, thank you for that come on now seriously when we think because that's our home that ain't dorothy that's the genius and you're right you're right you dropped it in a, in, in our private chat it's charlie smalls Charlie Smalls, who uh, did not live long. By the way, let me just drop this little footnote in in passing because it's not related, but it's by another lyricist. This was in yesterday's New York Times. Remember we've been talking about uh, Schoolhouse Rock? Dave Frischberg, yes. who was a jazz pianist, just made transition at 88 years old. This was his obituary in in um, in yesterday's New York Times. Of course, all of it was, was jazz. He was a jazz composer. So anyway, the, the writer of many of the songs in Schoolhouse Rock. So that black music, through the fingers of a white jazz pianist made its way, you know, that turns of cultural meaning making. But yeah, Char Charlie Smalls uh, is the guy, uh, worked with Hubiasa Kayla. Yeah, he passed away in, in, in Belgium. But The Wiz takes off, as we know, from that template, but The Wiz is all about black folk. And what you see is this fascinating, really in many ways, Always subversive, because anytime you got black folk doing cultural meaning making, and this is the 70s, which is a very different time than that. We're going to talk about that in a minute when we talk about Malcolm X in terms of how people think about things. That How we think about things really reflects where we are at the moment rather than whatever time period we're talking about. That's why when you look at the science fiction of any moment, any book, any movie, any, any show that you see in various other medium, you're really not looking at 2800 or 2100. Or if you see any period piece, you're really not looking. What you're looking at is the moment they created it. So, uh, I mean, we, we've talked several times and mentioned at least in passing several times the science fiction writer Philip K. Dick, who I found fascinating. I mean, you know, Man in the High Castle, which I'm looking at now, the novel where he's like, what if the Nazis won and, and, and the Japanese won the, the war? That's really a commentary on today. And then when he writes little story, stories like uh, Minority Report, 
for example, with the precogs, he's writing that in the 50s. It's in the 1950s. So, you know, when you see the handmaid's tale, Margaret Atwood, she's really writing about now. I mean, so it's all, you know, even all the science fiction we do, even the Westerns, we talked about, you know, the, the, the harder they fall. But the Wiz, written in the wake of the civil rights and black power movement, still the black power movement, still echoing in this country. You see this interesting, really internal critique of our governance structures. Oz is where the petty bourgeois is hanging out. I wouldn't be seen green. I wouldn't be caught dead red. Now, this, you know, you have this mass thing. Now, there's a gloss on it, obviously, in 39, you know. Um, can they even um, dye my eyes to match my gown? Mm -hmm. Jolly old town. Chip, 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 chip. But it's all <laughs> white people. And what's crazy is they put that in the movie in 39. And now, of course, you can get the color context. But I'm just saying, uh, this is the whole career of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Go back and look at Total Recall. Go look at The Running Man. Shit, The Running Man is reality television. It just, it just, it took him 20 years to catch up. Anyway, the whole point, the whole point is that um, in The Wiz, however, what Smalls does, and then Stephanie Mills cements that, is she, she populates, instead of Over the Rainbow, which we talked about. Remember when we talked about Billie Holiday? Because same guy who wrote Strange Fruit wrote lyrics for Over the Rainbow, right? Somewhere over the rainbow, bluebirds fly. It's very nice. But then Smalls put these words instead. And Stephanie Mills said, when I think of home, I think of a place where there's love overflowing. I wish I was home. I wish I was back there with the things I've been knowing. In other words, Dorothy is trying to return to the past. Smalls and Stephanie Mills are trying to come back into their governance structure with all the things they've seen. I'm not going to forget Oz. <laughs> I'm not going to forget these things. I'm going to go back and take it. And then she says, you know, when I think of home, maybe there's a chance for me to go back now that I have some direction. Maybe there's a chance I'll get hope. I mean, I'll get home rather. But she, I love that that third verse. The third verse, she talks about her world changing, and she's gonna have her. She's had her whole mind spun around in space, and then watched it growing, and then, and this is why I love. We talk about this a lot. In fact, I remember one year, I played her for our freshman seminar at Howard, about a thousand students. We were in the auditorium, and I told them the story of how the book was written, and the, you know, <laughs> parenthetically. I had to make a whiz reference a couple of years, uh, years, a couple of weeks ago during the Blackburn takeover. Remember when, uh, when we were talking about when Felicia Rashad and Debbie Allen were standing there? I said, now y'all remember from the whiz, right? The good witch. The bad witch. Anyway, the, how you read? Now, ain't nobody bring me no bad news. And you can't read that through the Wizard of Oz. You got to read Felicia Rashad through the whiz. That's it. Ain't nobody bring me no bad news. Come on, let's go in here. It's time to stop talking to these people. I mean, it was fascinating to me. It's, it, but, but anyway, the point is that that lyric when she's talking about I've, I've had my mind spun around in space, space and watched it growing yes that's exactly what happens to young people in college in other words i'm having my blind mind blown over and over again except i'm still here watching it <laughs> you know what i'm saying now i won't know what to do with a great deal of this stuff for years maybe till i have children who get to be my age or but i i'm what and then she ends it the same way that those Africans who created Kosekelele Africa created, which now became the South African National Anthem. She ends it with a prayer. If you're listening, God, please don't make it hard to know <laughs> if we should believe the things that we see. In other words, that's not, with all due respect, 
That's not Judy Garland. And there's a reason why John McWhorter, who, you know, seems to believe that Ebonics ain't really a language and black people have dumbed down this kind of thing. But when he was teaching, I remember I, I taught his the first book that he wrote publicly. He's a linguist. He's done some incredible scholarship on linguistics, but uh, losing the race many years ago. In fact, I used it for my education in black America class because I don't, I don't like to dismiss anybody without. You know, I'm not going to dismiss anybody, period. But I want to read what you said because we all oh, don't read. No, no, no. We're going to read this. And one of the points he makes in there, which is an ancillary point, is that he uh, he was he had, he had a black film class. And he said the black students, uh, when I showed them the older films from the 20s, the 30s, the silence, then he shows them, they kind of watched and then sometimes they fell asleep. And then we came to the 30s and 40s. Some of the musicals, they kind of perked up a little bit. But he said, when I got to the whiz, they all. And he said. And then he attributed it to other things because they weren't alive, obviously. But it's remarkable how that cultural meaning making resonates right now in the second decade, now the third decade of the 21st century with young people, particularly who never who didn't experience it, didn't see it on Broadway, didn't see it in the movie theater. But one of the reasons it resonates is because that film to, to kind of conclude on that, like those like those. Africana studies categories, when we say ways of knowing, that film plums our ways of knowing. Then it's not teaching as much as it's connecting with what we already know. It's the governance structure. We see it in operation. My man, one of the most brilliant lyrics in the history of America popular music. There are several that come to mind. One, of course, is be careful what you do when the lie becomes the truth. <laughs> Michael Jackson, we got to put him in that category. Absolutely. Now, but but another of them, oh my God. Again, Michael Jackson singing, but Small's lyrics, you can't win, you can't get even, you can't get out of the game. Some people were reminded of that with this verdict. You can't win, you can't get even, you can't get out of the game. You can't win. Now, that don't mean that you can't resist and liberate yourself what it means is as long as you accept the rules that you were given you're done you were done the minute you accepted the rules and we're going to talk about that today <laughs> you know what I'm saying? and so it's a subtle thing but when you see like teenagers singing that i'll be like well y'all what y'all know about that right there that's my favorite movie how's that your favorite movie you your parents hadn't even met <laughs> when that, so anyway go ahead press let's say no, something no, no. i mean on that note you know uh every day my challenge is to not center you know, what's happening in the world right now, because it can get, get you off your square. You know, you, you're going to be up, upset. And it's like, what does this mean? Are they going to now take to the streets with guns and be able to do X, Y, and Z? That's why protect has to be the first thing uh, that we all do. That's but, you know, as I'm thinking, it's like, you know, every day that we get up to build and every day that we get up to imagine the world outside of the framework that they've set for us. Yes. Like, let's stop. Like, let's stop mimicking and imitating even the way we present our news you know there's a couple of black news outlets right now shout out to them you know it's important but your 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 model's the exact same model as the others right. what, you know but just with black people maybe you know some black stories but why do we do it that way like I, is that that's not germane to who we've been right we're mimicking something that's a facsimile a poor one at that of all of the things that we've been, I'm like, I'm tired. I'm really tired. So I'm but glad that, we're here today. This is black and black owned. 
Yeah, well, you know, I, I said that not not to not be self-serving. Yes, yes no, 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 it should I mean, be done. Yes, but, but I mean, we can see the difference. We can see the difference between black facing and black owned. With all due respect, I mean, the story of and there's a couple. There's been at this point a number of books in arc. I mean, there's, there's the book, the billion dollar bet on BET. You know, I mean. BT, like any institution, was not perfect. No such thing as perfect institutions, human beings involved. And but when you see is that now we're at a place where it's not black owned, it's deeply black facing, and there's a great deal of, for lack of a better term, enameled minstrelsy. But you know, realizing though that you can you can gauge how effective or ineffective it is by um by how many eyeballs look at it and also how the content changes it's interesting with bt i don't watch a lot of uh, uh television now in the same way i'm much more surgical about it um my colleague belithia watkins absorbs it all and still does all her other work and i'm like, I don't know how you do it believe because you just don't sleep because i can't you know, we all got our talents and we you do you do it as well you you, you have know, I'm saying. We, you know we all got our thing that we need all, yeah, everybody that's to do that. and that's the point we do need everybody but when, when i look like for example at the tributes to queen latifah um, BT awards and things like that. In addition to being reminded that time passes quickly, <laughs> you see, it, it, what I see is that okay, so the ad revenue must be falling because the straight minstrelsy must not have attracted enough eyeballs, or you've run the algorithms, you're looking at the clicks, and so there's a little. I mean, the, the question of nostalgia is always at the center of human existence. We always, but as but as but as uh, Gil Scott Heron said in B Movie, his song B Movie, this country loves nostalgia. They want to go back to the glorious days of yesteryear when white men were running everything, and most of the time they can't go back much farther than last week. So today, in fact, we're going to talk about that too in terms of these connections we're making. But um, it, but but the point is that that's not black owned. Black News Channel not black owned. Now it's, it's littered with black people and it's great but like you said the format including of a lot of our friends you know what I'm saying but but the format is recognizable now but still that machined format that 30 second here two minute segment here five minute segment here you know and and it and it kind of you know talking head same question and, and and the content is different but the format isn't so really what you have is a way of knowing that isn't really emerging in a way and of course finally you know you look at the views and you realize okay i don't know how long that this billionaire owner of the jaguars is going to keep putting the bill for this because i don't know that it's catching on now finally and again we're here so in this moment we see what this is it's being building organically uh unlike the versus thing which went from we're all locked down d nice shout out to d nice genius coming in this minute and then but now and then, it, then it was um you know swiss beats and timberland because d nice had his own thing which mm -hmm. was amazing club club quarantine, club quarantine right you know um and then that came up about organically and then somebody triller somebody bought it and then now and now it, it's and now it's like yeah you you you're gonna kill it in fact it's probably already did so i mean in terms of because now it's too now us like you said and i remember you saying this at the very beginning you know, we could we could put in the huge production stuff and do it, but we're going to kind of feel our way through so that it never loses that momentum. And here we are a year and a half later. Eighty nine. This is eighty nine. Eighty nine in a row. We don't miss. Right. And and, and 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 attracting 
people from all over the world who share that desire, who have those talents and abilities, who have that interest in, in children, everybody, elders, people with their, everybody has a story. People sharing their stories, which is why, you know, the office hours concept is just, man, people are putting everything in. And so then, but this, this is what I'm going to say about it. This is Black-owned, Black-driven. Is it, Those ways of knowing are emerging. Those categories are coming to life. And, you know, last week uh, I was watching, as I was on that, you know, I do Thursday nights with Roland Martin and Black-owned. And also with a very, because it's all virtual, there's a sense, okay, I don't have to worry about segments that spill over. We're in charge of this. So for control room, we just keep it. We push it. And, you know, right now, of course, we know he's in Georgia with at the courthouse with the Ahmed Aubrey where he was yesterday and day before day before that and the thing that struck me was something that I saw nowhere because you're not going to see it anywhere in those social structure white facing and black facing white owned media formats with that same cookie cutter format you're not going to see somebody just basically turn on the camera and say we're covering this you watch and so watching Marcus Arbery the day all the ministers came, this is the father of Ahmad Aubrey. The sister spoke, you know, the father came after the sister. And one of uh, Ahmad Aubrey's nicknames apparently is Quail. I put what I heard Marcus Arbery say, we're going to come back to this again in a minute. With Wittenhouse, with Malcolm X and everything, which is why we're here today primarily. Um, but I heard Marcus Arbery give one of the most powerful, the Egyptians would call it a sebaite. Sebaite means almost like a teaching. But if you see the glyphs for seba, it is, in fact, I might have, I don't know if I have one of Ace's books. If I had one of Ace's books close, I could show you, but I don't think, yeah, I pulled it off the shelf for something else. And that's just too bad because I would I would show you all. But seba, there's a star. It's the S, the folded bolt of cloth, the B, which is the foot. And then ah, um, the Egyptian vulture. And then sometimes you see a human figure with a staff in their hand, almost like instructing. Sebaite means teaching. But if you see when you see a T on there, and then you see the, the hand, that means a teacher or somebody's giving a teaching, like a book or a lecture or a conversation. It's a teaching. But seba, S B A, S B ah, really ah, the ah sound. You often see the determinative of a star, five point star, which signifies the sense of having something illuminated, having something be made visible. And so a sebaite is a teaching. It helps illuminate. It helps bring something visible. And Ahmad Aubrey's father gave a sebaite on uh, Thursday and Roland played the whole thing. Mm. And I had to write it down. This is what Ahmad Aubrey said. So I want to thank all these pastors. And he said it in the voice of the South. This is the ways of knowing. You know what I'm saying? Because if you I, I, don't you love when uh, when we have documentaries made and white facing folk or people who are trying to reach for the white facing audience takes uh, Southerners or Africans from the Caribbean or the continent of Africa and put subtitles in and you sitting there like, well, I guess this wasn't made for me because I understand everything she's saying. <laughs> but I mean, And I'm not talking about those with the deep accents. I'm not talking about Gullah Geechee. You know what I'm saying? I'm not, no, no, I'm not talking about Nolans. <laughs> no, I'm talking about people who talk like we talking right now. And you just see the talk like we talking right now. What the hell? You, you, okay, no problem. So this is what uh, uh, Marcus Arbery said. He's standing there. And you know, 
the white boys didn't want no preachers coming down there. And we talked about that, you know, fine, no problem. Didn't want no black people, no, no black people of note, uh, of public note coming. So Maude Arbery's father, Marcus Arbery Sr., because, you know, Maude Arbery was, was uh, he had two, two siblings. Um, he was the youngest. He said he is the youngest. Shout out, as you say, to Richard Williams and to Will Smith playing Richard Williams. Th those people who are over there in what is called the cemetery in the West, the Egyptians would call them the Westerners. They now live in the realm uh, beyond on top of the earth. And so their, their mortal remains are there, but we acknowledge them because they are ancestors. And so that's a beautiful, that's, uh, yeah, that, that, that's another window into why you can't really shake the Williams sisters. If they shook, they'll talk to each other about it. But you ain't never going to come in, Monica Sellers. You ain't never going to come in, Steffi Griff. You're not ever going to come. What's that little one, the little Swiss miss who Venus used to eat for dinner? Uh, oh, Martina Hingis <laughs> with your precision. Pow! Now your ass is over in the street, right? Now y'all can be over there in the locker room talking to each other. And this one over here and stuff some tissue paper in her boobs to make me think, yeah, okay, you, you have to do that. In fact, who invented bras? In fact, who invented high heels? In fact, who invented all that uh, fashion that alters your shape because somehow there's a deep insecurity to center of all your cultures man so stuff in that bra really is probably consistent with your ways of knowing but anyway whenever they got in the thing they would talk to each other <laughs> you know what i'm saying so now i mean because they're not just in there by themselves now you know they have ways of knowing that come that african people intersect with whether it be you know jehovah witness or no are they jehovah's witness seven day events Seven, uh, uh, Jehovah Witnesses. Yeah, the Jehovah Witnesses raised seven. But, but, but either way, that ways of knowing is deep with spirituality. So here's here's Marcus Arbery standing here with all these ministers, all these people, including all these children who are there. In the, they marching. You know, you don't want us to come? That means we coming. Marcus Arbery stands up and says, all these pastors, thank you all. We know that Quail was killed wrongly. Quail being Mar uh, Ahmaud Arbery's nickname. We know that Quail was killed wrongly, but look at the change he brought. He brought a change with his life. God put God got his way of putting that devil out in the air. I was at that point. I'm like, wait a minute, hold up. Now you got all these ministers here, and they all they, most of them black, but not all of them black. Marcus Arbery said, God got a way of pulling that devil out the air. God had to use his life to pull that devil out the air to make this world better for our other kids, so other kids can run and won't get killed or shot at. God did this. So I'm gonna tell Quail. I'm gonna tell Quail, we love you. But Quail resting now. This is what he says, right? Quail's in the West. Those of you who heard the Isis and Osiris stories, the Greeks would call them a Sarset story. They say, okay, Set killed his brother, Wasir, and cut him up. And, and Yeah, Wasir's not coming back. Wasir is dead now. But dead don't mean final. In fact, he's now returned to the West, which means he can see everything. He's the Kim Ware, the great black. Because beyond this life, right, which is why we all had to use uh, memorize Invictus, when we were pledging in undergrad, beyond this place of uh, wrath and tears. No, no, no. See, that's the European uh, the European worldview. Those of you who had to learn. And when I pledged Alpha, they would always make me recite it because I would do it in a fake British accent. So while we're in the middle of some crazy session, they'd be like, okay, car. Out of the night that covers me, black is the pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. And meanwhile, they look, yeah, say, say, keep going, keep going. But the but the but, but the one I want to mention is that he says, um, in the poem, he says, uh, how does it go? He says, 
um, beyond this place of wrath and tears. So you've already framed life as suffering. Beyond this place of wrath and tears, y'all know that because you had to study it in high school, everything from Oedipus to all the damn Shakespeare's, the Western worldview centers trauma. So don't think it's just us. They bleed that sore off on us. But no, it's at the center of their thing too, right? So beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the grave. So when it's over, it's over. Oh. Marcus Arbery got a different way of knowing. He said, what did he say? He said, God had to use his life to pull that devil out the air. I'm going to make you visible now. To make this world better for our kids. For, for other kids, he said. He said, so other kids can run and won't get killed or shot at. God did this. So I'm going to tell Quail. I'm telling my blood son, we love you. Your family loves you. But Quail resting now. But guess what? Then he pivots. But guess what? That devil got to pay now. Y'all got to pay. Y'all tore my family up. Y'all tore us up. But look what you did to your own. You tore yours up too. Because guess what? If you had a heart, you let him kept running. You never took no gun to a baby. He ain't no baby. And yeah, he's a baby to his father and mother will always be. A what? A 12-gauge shotgun? File that away for in a minute. A 12-gauge shotgun and a 357 Magnum? You took that to a baby. You took a gun you bring an animal down with. You shot him with it. And you think you did something right? <laughs> Marcus Arby said, I hope God be with you. But I don't think he is. God with praying people. God bless y'all people been here behind my family and I thank y'all. God is good. And you know what black people say all the time. Now that may seem I love simple. it. That was a say bite. What he did immediately, I want everybody to hear this. We all can believe different things. I'm gonna tell you what I believe. We don't pray to the same God. I believe what Marcus Arbery said. Turn him loose, Bruce, my man, Schrader. Thank you, Schroeder. Thank you. Thank you for reminding us that we are the same species. The same blood runs through our veins, but we are not of the same kind. You, sir, will defend your absurd self-killing whiteness until you die and pass that on. Shout out to the jurors who wouldn't even, well, he, well, turn them loose. Bruce made sure they dropped the weapons charge. And then, you know, listening to you and Angie Porter talk about it. I mean, you just walk through, it's very clear. And y'all laid that out. As you said, y'all laid that out. You've been laying it out for weeks. Y'all laid it out again next week. Anybody thought that it was more likely than not he was going to get convicted doesn't really know the law. You, you leading with your heart. But but turn them loose, Bruce, remind you. And, uh, and for that matter, Joe Biden. Shout out to Joe Biden. The, the system worked. We're not shout out to Kamala Harris, who was like, okay, I gotta swallow that too. I don't know. I don't mm, I don't agree. Okay, okay, there's a little resistance. We, we see you. I mean, because but but see, Marcus Arbery is not trying to plead for his humanity. In fact, you can we can debate, we can say, well, no, God didn't have to do with it, and that's great. That's the governance structure conversation, that's the ways of knowing conversation. But that man believed God did that, and you told your family up too, and he said, I hope God be with you. Maybe remind me of a fan Lou Hamer, but he said, but I don't think he is. Oh, there's the declarative sentence. Some of them people with them collars on and some of them people standing out there and some of the people watching was like, oh, no, no, no. We should all be together. <laughs> Marcus Arbery said, God, we're praying people. Well, I pray. Yeah, but you pray to something else. 
just like them Africans in New Orleans put them fences up around them churches. He said, this is beautiful. And they said to each other, yeah, because whatever you praying to in there, we're going to put some symbols in here to keep whatever that is in there, in there. Because our God is stronger than your God. But we still here. So when you hear that, when he says, you took a 12 gauge and a 357 Magnum, you took that to a baby. Well, you know, Sylvia Winter, there's no humans involved. But guess what we found out Thursday? There are no humans involved for black adjacent either. You out shouting Black Lives Matter and you not black, the white boy can come from Illinois and blow you away, shoot your bicep off. And then y'all was talking with Angie for the survivor. And, you know, we think about them. In fact, we, we, we send all best energies to those people who were out there. You talk about allies. You talk about allies. You got to talk about Anthony Huber. You got to talk about uh, Gage Grosskritz. You got to talk about Joseph Rosenbaum. Because even, even if it's the right place, wrong time, you lost your life because this white boy hiked up on white supremacy, drove in, and what Thursday's verdict means to us, you could put in one sentence in terms of the social structure. It means a, a, a reinforcement of the fact that these white nationalists, while they prepare for what they imagine is going to be soon, demographically at least, minority rule, and that's everything from the gerrymanders to the attempts to destroy uh, the social safety net to every attempt possible to make sure that the federal government uh, does not remain in the hands of anybody who might even think about giving you any of your tax money back. Uh, they're saying now that this uh, that this deep, 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 deep white nationalist Kevin McCarthy could be Speaker of the House without anything changing in terms of voting uh, in the midterm elections. If everybody voted in, who, in 22, who voted in 20, he'd be the Speaker of the House because the gerrymandering alone is going to flip five or six seats. They are now figuring out how to get minority rule. And turn them loose, Bruce. Deep respect for you, man. Appreciate you. Because in a minute, we're going to quote from the book of Ida B. Wells, but we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> the, uh, on you, sir. You, sir. But, um, what that verdict really signifies is that just as in the 19th century after the Civil War, just like as in America before the Civil War, every white person is deputized and that white vigilantes coming soon to a rally near you, coming soon to a march near you. And it's all just a matter of state law. Federal, yeah, yeah, everybody calm down. Because it isn't just the law in the books, it's the culture, it's the perception, it's the capacity. So when you see now what, what that ruling, thank you, Jerry, what that ruling signifies is that, as has always been the case, but it's spiked at moments in American history in the, so, the U.S. social structure, traveling white nationalist vigilantes, state abetted, because, of course, Kyle Rittenhouse was abetted by the police in the streets, um, and the cop that shot Jacob Blake, not charged, although as Angie reminds us, and as you all talked about, uh, there's still civil legislation pending, among other things. State abetted, jury and courts uh, immunized. We got you, even if they charge you, we got you. These vigilantes now are saying that not only don't black lives matter, we know no humans are involved there. If you're out there with them, there's enough of the taint that will come to you. Now, that's not a new development. What it is, is I think for a lot of people in the world, particularly in the United States of America, it's a revelation that uh, those who study the law and who practice the law know because in everything from employment discrimination to housing discrimination, you can be black adjacent and file a suit. I don't know if y'all knew that. When you look at 1981 cases, employment discrimination, when you look at uh, uh, property law cases, if you are discriminated against uh, on a job for having a 
black spouse or black girlfriend or boyfriend, you can you can withstand a prima facie case. You can you your case can make it to court. All th- all other things being equal, and I'm just saying that to say that black adjacent harm was the lesson that some people should have learned on Thursday. But I want to say just a couple, just one more couple things about Rittenhouse, and then we'll go to the to connect this. Remember that 12 gauge shotgun. Um, this is this is this is to, uh, today's Financial Times, and you know, I always look at the Financial Times to see, you know, what the paper of international finance capital is concerned about. And it, uh, the Rittenhouse verdict only made it to page four, and it's on the it's right here on the bottom. Rittenhouse acquitted on all charges in Kenosha shootings. But what I found interesting was the article that was next to it paired with it. Those of you who follow a little bit of uh, politics in India know that Modi the uh, prime minister backed up off of something that he was really trying to get done. Uh, the headline is Modi abandons unpopular farm reforms after protests. And I just thought it was a little bit of serendipity that these two articles would be next to each other because what do they have to do with each other? Well, the reason why a Kyle Ritt- one of the reasons why a Kyle Rittenhouse would strap up. In fact, let me, let me see. Can I, I just started reading a new book that came out. If I can reach it. Yeah. This is a guy. Uh, Nadav Iyal, it's called Revolt, The Worldwide Uprising Against Globalism. Very interesting character. He is um, a well-known journalist. Uh, he's actually in Israel, um, chairman of the Israeli Movement for Freedom of Information. And I don't think anybody would accuse him of being ideologically consistent with a lot of people, a lot of other people who we might be more consistent with. But he's an interesting observer. And one of the things that he talks about in this book, and I just started reading it. I'm only a couple of chapters in. But the reason I, I, I bought it and started reading it, and I'll tie it to this right here in terms of Rittenhouse and Modi together, is that globalism has been here for a long time. People traveling, people trading, people interacting. But over the last 500 years, the, the years of Western expansion, which, of course, he celebrates the Enlightenment, you know, all that stuff they run. I'll drop a little Jacob Carruthers on him. I don't know. You know, I mean, he wouldn't care anyway because it don't matter. But to him, which is great because it don't matter to me, it don't matter to him. But the the idea is that this global expansion that drew people into these larger networks has reached a point now where so many elements of it have superheated, have, you know, like like great inequalities and inequities that people are turning against the governments in the places they are. And so he makes some interesting parallels, for example, between the so-called progressives and the so-called conservatives, even the so-called ultra-right and the so-called ultra-left, as he would say. He said they, 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 all those people share an anxiety about the future that is directly, uh, that is relative to the incapacity of the government in the countries they're in to intervene on their behalf. So that's going to look different depending on where you are. So, for example, in India, you've got these farmers and farmers form the backbone of the Indian economy. And what Modi wanted to do was have these long term laws in place that would allow private companies to negotiate with and trade with farmers directly. But right now, the government has subsidies in place in India where the farmers sell to the government. Modi wanted to get rid of those. Well, that, well, the farmer said, that's going to superheat capitalism and wipe us out. We know what y'all doing. He said, what do you mean you know what we're doing? Dude, you think we can't see what happened in the United States or other places? You, it, and so what they did was they have had a 14-month war, highway sit-ins. You know, India got a billion plus people. 
So you talking about farm? They have shut. They shutting stuff down. They Modi is known for putting press, pressing the gas. He don't give a damn. But this time they backed him up. Why? One of the reasons is elections are coming, and two of the states in Uttar Pradesh and Punjab, the they are agricultural states. He is he is worried that he's going to lose those states, and that could lead for him to him eventually being put out of power. So they broke Modi. It took a year and some change. But he backed up off it. And then let me just read this last quote. They said, uh, it says, farmers were subdued after Modi's rollback pledge. He, gonna, he said, I'm not going to push for these laws. But these farmers were subdued, expressing weary relief, though protest leaders said they would not disperse until the repeal process was complete. Quote, what is there to cheer about? End quote. Asked Jektar Singh, 60, who cultivates 10 acres in Punjab. Quote, who is going to pay for the losses we have suffered in the last 14 months? More than 600 demonstrators have died over the past year. The point is that it might look like a loss this past Thursday with this Rittenhouse verdict. We don't know what's going to happen in Georgia with Ahmaud Aubrey, but those are not and should not be the focus of our attention. We can't allow these moments to be over-determined as significant. You can't be hooked-took hoodwink, bamboozle, run them up. What do I mean by that? Let's say the verdict had been the exact opposite and he had been convicted on all fronts. How would that change your life? Now, you could argue that him not being convicted might do more for removing the arguments that, oh no, the system works. Mm -mm. We know the system don't work. And this is not, this is a reminder for a lot of us, but for other people, it's one step closer to, well, how can we change this? Right. We got your attention now. Okay. Come to this meeting. Okay. Come, let's do this work together. Come, let's build this together. And what you see in India is they say, well, y'all won. Said, no, we didn't win. We got a temporary respite. You, you think, respite. You think that if Modi wins those two provinces uh, in, the, in the upcoming elections that he ain't going to put that same legislation back up. The only reason he backed up is because we backed him up. And that is really the lesson. And well, let me let me say this as well, because this is where why I said that pairing was interesting on the page. That anxiety about a future where I don't know if I'll have a job, that anxiety about a globalization that has you meeting at the at the community center known as Walmart and getting your cheap stuff and trying to get a job there and you won't get no raise, but this is where y'all go on Friday nights to have a, that, you know, and then you realize, wow, these prices are cheap because the same, for the same reason, I don't have a job. You're not really worried about these people overseas. What he's arguing in this book is that nationalism, in other words, saying my country, patriotism, saying my country isn't a bad thing if it can be linked to efforts to reform the global system. And that's why I think by the end of this book, he's probably gonna punch himself in the face. <laughs> because, and I don't know, I'm that speculative. In fact, let me not let me not speculate. Let me just continue to let the book unfold because I want to see where he's going with this. But the reason I the reason I said that, even as speculation, is that nationalism in terms of nation-state nationalism is a dead end. That's 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 my general kind of difference with a with a concept like the 1619 project it's an american nationalist project in other words you know this country is flawed this country is founded in enslavement and oppression but if we work hard we can make this place to play okay 
y'all do understand that the air don't know the difference between America and China, right? Or America and South Africa. You do understand that the global South, in fact, I just, oh man, you do understand that global warming is not a nation state conversation, right? In fact, this is uh, the new issue of New York Magazine. It just came out. The Guilty and the Damned. The Guilty and the Damned. The subheading is Poisoning the Planet enriched, it, enriched Its Wealthiest and Condemned Its Poorest, Confronting the Gravest Injustice of the 21st Century. So it does no good. And, and then, of course, on near the right is The Economist. This just came out, The World Ahead, 2022. And looking at this, uh, this is the New Atlantic. You know, they got their own take. The bad guys are winning. But you got G there. You got uh, the Turkish prime minister. You got uh, Putin there. And you got the, and, and so they still try. But my point is that global threats are threats to all of humanity. And so retreating into nation state nationalism at this point is probably a dead end. It's going to take internet. And he makes this point early in the book. Actually, he says it's going to take international institutions to do something about it. But when you've got a United Nations that's basically run by the powers that won the last world war, because that's who runs the UN Security Council, that organization can't help you because they are vetoing things based on a geopolitical military strategy that is outdated. You got global viruses now. You got global warming that's going to wipe all the species out now. You're not going to get it by the Chinese, the Russians, the French, the United States, Great Britain, the cowardly lion, just with medals on the chest, trying to <laughs> trying to figure... No, that world is gone. Do you understand that? The Steve Bannons of the world think they can reproduce that world by seeding white nationalism in these different countries and creating a kind of transnational pan-Europeanism, a new pan-Europeanism. Pan-Africanism, in contrast, isn't about running the world. It's about trying to create a better world for everybody and beginning with those who have been oppressed of African descent and coming together to come up with solutions that will ultimately help everybody, but begin with the oppressed people of African descent coming together. There are a lot of pan-movements, but those movements are not nation-state movements now. What is any of this? And so that's why Kyle Rittenhouse will get in his car in Illinois, drive to Kenosha, shooting at people because he thinks somehow these black lives are not worth anything and anybody white with them is crazy. So he got to come and in his own testimony, defend property, even though he ain't got no property where his where he from, because it's all slipping away. All these foreigners and these immigrants and these blacks and these and these people here, you're with them, so you must be an end lover. I'm here to help the police. Give me some bottle of water. I'm gonna give you some bottle of water. We're gonna shoot at each other. I got my gun. Dude, you understand that you've been driven crazy by a global system that relies on that kind of ignorance to sustain itself. But here's the problem we have: how far do we go trying to convince you that you're wrong? Well, according to Marcus Arbery, he's had enough. So instead of saying, we're going to pray with you, we're going to keep talking to you, we're going to keep trying to, you know, get with you, you know, nah, you you, you took guns that you would bring an animal down with. And so I hope God be with you. I do. Uh, but I don't think he is. <laughs> God, we're praying people. In other words, I'm. that's it. I'm going to stop talking to you. Now, what's that have to do with Malcolm X? Well, everything. Everything. Malcolm X was killed with a 12-gauge shotgun. But it wasn't uh, the killers of my Aubrey. It was black people. And guess what? A lot of people knew who did it. And this week, was it this week? 
Where my newspapers at? Did they let these brothers go finally? So how many victims? Oh, well, they didn't let them go. They've been out of jail. One brother passed away, but they exonerated him, right? I don't know what I did with the New York Times. Here's the Washington Post from Thursday. And uh, above the fold, two men to be exonerated in killing mm-hmm. Malcolm X. Got their pictures, right? Now, you know it's big news when the money paper in America decides they're going to do it. The Wall Street Journal, they go to brothers. Prosecutor seeks to exonerate two in the killing of Malcolm X. The Manhattan District Attorney will ask a court Thursday to exonerate Muhammad Aziz and the late Khalil Islam, two of the three men convicted in the assassination of Malcolm X in 1965. That's great. Now, in my mind, as I'm reading these papers and looking at these news reports, I almost felt like Cyrus Vance as the New York prosecutor should have got up and said, and as we exonerate these men, I want to thank them for their service. Hmm. Thank you for your service. Because everybody know y'all didn't do it. But we had to put this on black people. So my predecessors in Bossy, the intelligence agents in, in New York, the, the domestic police, the federal police, the international police, meaning the FBI, CIA, we had to make sure this was some black on black crime. The social structure needed to eliminate this man. We knew in your governance structure there was beef. And so we very consistently kept harping on stuff, harping on stuff, moving on stuff. And once it intensified, we just kind of stepped back. It happened. And then, boom, we put y'all in jail along with the one dude who we know did it, Thomas Hare. But you other two cats, y'all got to pay. Then we shut it down and move on to the next uh, COINTELPRO move. Now, people say, well, that sounds like conspiracy theories. Let's pause here because you've interviewed this brother. And he's a friend of mine, Abdul uh, Abdul Rahman Muhammad. Yep. Could you say a minute, you, you know, give us your impression of who killed Malcolm? And by the way, y'all, y'all know we talked about this at length. So in, in the archive, in the narrative archive, and, you know, we were working out to annotate and get everything together because there's a lot of sources. We talked about Malcolm a couple of times, one time at great length. But uh, the Who Killed Malcolm X series, and even this exoneration, when you saw the news, what did you think about, Prof? Well, I did first think about the Who Killed Malcolm uh, documentary mm-hmm. uh, by Mr. Rahman. Uh, and we have talked about that extensively. And then I also thought we already knew that those two brothers were not guilty. That's right. Why did it take that long? That's right. Well, so similar to all these other cases, right? We know what we know. The the true perpetrators, you know, get to you know go get off scot free. Um, but I was interested to hear. And I know you asked me to pull this Gil Noble clip. Do you want me to to play would that? You, would yeah. you? Yeah, okay. this, this is Gil Noble. Gil Noble did one of the earliest films on Malcolm, and we'll talk about some of those films in passing in a minute. Gil Noble came back twenty years after the assassination of Malcolm X and did a piece for ABC Seven, which they recently posted. But this is brother Gil Noble. Letting you know that who killed Malcolm X? In the words of Talmadge Hayer in prison, and he told me that he thought that Malcolm was a hypocrite and that he was wrong in bad mouthing Elisha. He told me this on camera, and um, he told me how they went about assassinating him, and you know how determined they were to take him out. 
He really believed it, do you think? Oh, he, yeah, he really did. He thought, and the more Malcolm protested, uh, the angrier they became. And so he took me right through. He was one of the gunmen. He had a pistol, and he described how there were three gunmen. One had a rifle and two had pistols. He was one of the gunmen. The rifle went off first and struck down Malcolm, and the two men with revolvers went up to the stage and emptied their revolvers. Mm -hmm. And he told me that he was convinced that he had done the right thing. And I asked him, I said, um, in your life, have you ever so much as spat at a member of the White Citizens Council or the Ku Klux Klan? Or did you ever smack one? And he dropped his head and he said, no. Did he understand the meaning of that question, do you think? I made it clear. Mm -hmm. But he said that... Um, it wasn't until years later, while in prison, that he came to understand that Malcolm was not lying, he was not wrong, and that there was corruption. And he had a nervous breakdown in prison because he realized that he, who he had taken yes, off. Yes, exactly. You know? So, I mean, this was just a very, very painful experience. And it's something that we are not yet wrestling with. Uh, I don't want to get overly philosophical, but I just wanted to respond to your question that Malcolm had a tremendous impact on me after he was uh, dead. Afterwards. Yes, because after that, I became hungry to get this story and learn more about this extraordinary man. Alex Haley just came out with the book soon after the assassination, got to know Alex, became a very good friend. And I began, I got to know Betty and the whole family, all of this. And so I began to fill out this cavity. I had this rich nourishment from Martin, but the cavity that uh, my ignorance had created with uh, Malcolm was beginning to be filled in. And then even more significant, I think. Oh, well, no, let him play the role that the students played. Yes because I think that that's something that today's students don't really understand. The role that the students played, and you just, um, last week this time, you were at Howard, on Howard's campus, and shortly thereafter, they reached a settlement. So, you know, shout out to the students at Howard. Shout out to the roles that students are playing. Oh, wait, hold on, let me uh, clip this. All right. Yes, yes. How should we be feeling about this? Well, your ancestral colleague, our brother, the great Gil Noble, just gave us our point of entry. If we're using, and thank you for playing that, and for folk who, someone who may not have ever seen that before, I'm not saying you shouldn't watch Who Killed Malcolm X on Netflix or anywhere else you can get it. It's entertaining, I suppose. There's nothing new in it at all. The narrative, even though it kind of hints and then mentions very quickly international intrigue and the CIA and FBI, it really, which is why I say Vance should thank these two brothers for their service, 
it really is a another love letter letter to the U.S. social structure. Because a wrong was not righted this past Thursday. Those men served their purpose. This was some black on black stuff. This is some NS, NS, you know, as they talk about, NS. But Gil Noble helps us understand in terms of a point of entry. He's given us a point of entry to really have this conversation from the governance structure. He said it was after Malcolm had been taken physically that he went looking because he had a hole. Of course he had a hole. The whole social structure tried to demonize Malcolm the same way they tried to demonize, demonize Marcus Garvey, the same way they would come against anybody who did not have control of their own uh, capacity to speak to the people. And when he said that, of course, the words, the Sabaid of Marcus Arbery came back again, you know. So I'm going to say to Quail, I'm going to say to Malcolm, we love you. But Malcolm, he resting now. Quail resting now. But guess what? That devil got to pay now. Y'all got to pay. Y'all tore my family up. But look what you did to your own. You tore yours up too. He said, well, they didn't tell their own family up with Malcolm X. Really? Do you know how many people and he, and, he, and he gestures toward it with the students. You made people then begin to pay attention to Malcolm X, who had kind of been around, but then weaponized it. Everybody from the Henry brothers, Milton and Donald Henry, Amari and Gaidi Obadele, who created the Malcolm X Society in Detroit, because that's that last speech that he made in Detroit, messed to the grassroots after they firebombed his house. And we talked about that. And the and the, uh, the Malcolm X Society morphed into the Republic of New Africa. And the Republic of New Africa became one of the pillars of what became the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America. And the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America, inheriting the reparations struggle from the 19th century and the end of statement to today, is one of the reasons why there is an HR 40. You're looking at Malcolm X. When you hear the music of John Coltrane in that period. Tupac Shakur got him out. We're going to talk about that in a second, too, and bring the FBI. But what, what Gil Noble helps us see is that this social structure, love letter to itself, this is what the social structure does. Uh, what was the speech? Uh, the speech, the poem that was uh, Carl, I forget his last name, um, gave, uh, wrote in the wake of the killing of Martin Luther King. Let us praise him now that he is safely dead. But they didn't praise Malcolm. You read the newspapers in the wake of the assassination of Malcolm X, reinforcing the hate narrative, reinforcing it. In fact, why is Malcolm X so kind of ad admissible today? Because he's been uh, sanitized. He's been sanitized. And what Gil Noble, and this is Gil Noble closer to when he began to form the relationships that he talks about with uh, Alex Haley and the Shabazz family led by, of course, Betty Shabazz. This story was told from Jump, which then after this exoneration, I went to work scurrying around, trying to find and, and pull together. Let me start with let me start with the places we should all start. And I won't venture too deeply into it because, again, I'm not a scholar of Malcolm X. I know enough to be conversant and to know where to look and I also know enough to know who to talk with and who to have conversations with. My brother uh, Kalanzi Changa is going to do an interview on his Riot Starter platform this week with two people who are going to have a very rich conversation. This is in Black Power Media platform, mostly YouTube. But 
they uh he's gonna have a conversation with my friend paul lee who he would shy away from this but now i mentioned paul before but i say he's the he's the greatest living malcolm x scholar and that's not in terms of trying to you know pump him up because he would immediately defer to somebody else in fact one of the people he deferred to is going to be conversation kalanji gonna be talking to paul uh, who's out of Highland Park, Michigan? Shout out to Highland Park, Michigan, to the Detroiters, and you know he's been all over the world. But I mean, that's his base; that is his home. And uh, he is going to be in conversation with Paul Kalanji is, and also the man that Paul said you got to talk to him. We were on email doing a round robin this week. Kalanji was trying to, you know, he, he asked me. I said, "You got to talk to Paul." He said, "Yeah, that's what I thought." I'm talking to Paul. Paul's like, "You got to talk to Peter Goodman, who knew Malcolm, who conversed with Malcolm." Uh, who wrote a book called The Death and Life of Malcolm X, where he walks through the assassination. The first edition, he says, okay, well, the accounts here kind of matches up so that maybe they got several of the right guys. But then he reverses himself, and he's done three editions because he talks to Talmadge Hare. And Hare confessed. You heard Gil say, eventually, he had, he had a breakdown in jail because he was an acolyte. He was a, a, he was a nation, rah, rah, let's do it. That Newark mosque is at the center of it. And so what you see is Hare not only has a breakdown, he then says who was with him and who the accomplices were. But we're gonna we're gonna we are going we will not take a whole lot of time. But this is important because this news broke today. Uh this news broke this week, and the social structure is like, okay, we're writing a wrong, we're moving. You ain't writing a wrong. You did this, and now you want to spray a little cologne on yourself because the numbers is changing in the United States. Just like them farmers made Modi back up in this country right now, particularly after last summer, y'all are terrified that these Negroes are going to get together. And the only thing keeping more people from getting together is the weaponized ignorance of social media, the weaponized ignorance of mass media. Uh, and so you you create this who killed Malcolm X like it's a who done it, and there's nothing new in it. And it's and you still make it look like it's just a black thing. It's much more complicated than that. And in this country, like a Rittenhouse verdict, that Rittenhouse verdict, you know, just demonstrates again that the potential community bond that allows for this class solidarity, multiracial class solidarity in the face of people scared out of their minds because of the effects of globalization. And, and they express that cultural and economic anxiety. Do you know what the barrier to that is? White Christianity in this country is often commingled with white nationalism. It's the, it's, it's the Christianity of the Klan. It's the Christianity of the Klan. And the religious separatists, oh, I'm sorry, we should use their common name now, what they call it, the pilgrims. We'll get to Thanksgiving in a minute, but the whole idea, white Christianity is co-mingled with white nationalism. And so the idea then that African people in the United States are vulnerable only in the United States is something that this U.S. system relies on to keep us from building solidarity movements that go beyond the United States. And guess who was at the center of that in 1965? Malcolm X. Omaha, Nebraska, as we talked about. Lansing, Michigan, as we talked about. Mother from Grenada, father from Georgia, as we talked about. Malcolm X, who spent all this time just previously in Africa with all these African leaders who are saying, let's build a pan-African union and you'll be our representative from the United States. We want an official relationship with you. Now, did they all have pure motives? Probably not, because they are politicians. 
which means this is a point of entry for us in the international order that is coming out of World War II that we're trying to overthrow and reconfigure. So whether it be Nasser in Egypt, whether it be Nkrumah in Ghana, whether it be Sekou Ture in Guinea, whether it be uh, any of these pieces, Nandi Zikawe in, in Nigeria, Malcolm is going to, he went to the Organization of African Unity meeting in 64, then he goes on a tour throughout Africa, talking, listening to people, talking with students, his plane lands in Paris, I mean, yeah, in Charles de Gaulle, and, and the French are like, you can't get off the plane, why? Because the Frenchmen tipped off by the CIA that we know we, we trying to kill this well y'all y'all ain't gonna kill him here shit if you kill him here you know we trying to keep Algeria in line we done already took an ass whooping down here once <laughs> I mean the last thing we want to do is Malcolm that he stays on the plane you know what I'm saying so and it sounds like was well, this conspiracy theory yeah it is conspiracy because the third book in fact for me the point of departure book because I look I defer to Paul on this as with all things Malcolm as far as I'm concerned and there are other books that you can get as well that are even more recent. And I'll, and, I'll, and I'll mention a couple of them before I get to the heart of what, what I want to talk about today. Oh, man, I thought I had them. I really do want to show you all these because if I don't, I will I will regret it for as long as um, oh, doggone it. I don't know what I did with those books. Anyway, uh, a couple of them. Mm, 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 mm. See, that's what happens when you got too many books you've been looking for and through to make a point. Ah, here we go. Here's one of them. Okay, uh, come yeah, on. yeah. This is uh this is called look, no 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 notice the book I didn't mention. Uh Manny Marable's book. Yeah, we went through that. Yeah, we sure did. And and I want to say before I say anything else, because I'm not gonna say much after this. Here goes the other one. Um that <laughs> Now, uh, Manny Marable was a friend. Ma Manny Marable um, is the person I sat with when I finished my law degree, myself and Dr. Watkins, Lee Watkins, we sat with him, who encouraged me to go into Africana studies that I already made up my mind to do it at Ohio State. He was just leaving Ohio State at the time. And, uh, you know, I have a great deal of respect and admiration for him, um, particularly his work in the 70s and 80s, his capitalism, underdeveloped Black America. I mean, all of his work. The Great Wells of Democracy. I mean, I'm just this just names that come in race reform rebellion. So many uh Manny Marable's book. That last book, not at all convinced he wrote it. In fact, when I went to uh, check on him or to see if he was in the office, uh shortly before he made transition up at Columbia, I was in town for a conference. In fact, that was Howard Dyson's retirement from the Schomburg. I was there and I went by Columbia and I saw one of the graduate students editing pages. And I thought to myself, Yeah, he ain't in this no more. And that book reads so different. Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention, which is why I would point you to uh, my friends, Jared Ball and Todd Burroughs, their book, Correcting Manny Marable's Malcolm X, is called A Lie of Reinvention, of course, published by the indomitable Paul Coates, <laughs> Black Classic Press. <laughs> I would, I would, you see the contributors in there, all the people, Mumia, the first name on the thing, Carl Evans, who wrote a very important book called The Judas Factor, which we'll talk about in a minute on the assassination. Uh, so two black presses, talk about black presses, black classic, and of course the great third world press, Haki Booty out of Chicago. This is the collection by any means necessary, Malcolm X, real, not invented, not reinvented, critical commentaries on Manning Marable's biography of Malcolm X. If you got two books to buy and you got the choice between these two and the third book you have an option to buy is Manning Marable's book, get these two. You don't need Manning Marable's book. Now, but the book on the assassination, in fact, Paul Lee writes 
Paul writes the prelude to this book. It's the 1993 book by Baba Zap Kondo, Conspiracies, Unraveling the Assassination of Mac Malcolm X. Forward by Robert Little. Robert Little is the youngest member of Malcolm's family. That's Malcolm's brother. Paul Lee, foremost researcher on Malcolm X. As I told y'all before, I, I met Malcolm's brother, Wilfred, through Paul. Paul brought him down when we were in Detroit one time. He came down. This book, Zach Kondo, in fact, let's just, let's just get this out of the way. Talmadge Hare named the guys that killed Malcolm X. This book was published in 1993, by the way. Um, in the appendix, here's the biographical uh, sex sketch of the assassins. Zach writes, most of the information below was provided by Talmadge Hare and was published in the July 1980 edition of Al Kalam. It describes each assassin as he was in 1965. It was used in the petition submitted by Norman Butler, Muhammad Aziz, and Thomas Johnson, Khalil Islam, these are the guys that they're patting themselves on the back for exonerating a couple of days ago. It was submitted to the Black Caucus of the 96th Congress of the United States in 1979. I'm going to pause there for a second. What good is a politician if they're not going to do what you elected them to do? You made a very important point a minute ago, Professor Hunter, in terms of our obligation in the political process. We have to use all the tools in our toolbox. And if you're going to be an elected politician, these brothers, with the backing of the dude that had a, a mental breakdown and confessed and then named the other guys, petitioned the CBC in 1979. Look, the, here's the guy who did it. He confessed and he gonna, we didn't do it. We wasn't even in the Audubon that day. And we're going to talk about that in a second. Oh, ho, 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 it took me a minute to get here, but here we go. Mm. House, you are absolutely irrelevant. You are irrelevant. Mm. So go have your party. Go get your million or $2 million from the GoFundMe or the white racist billionaire that's going to hit you off lovely. And you and your mama go live on an island somewhere and relax and chill because you are completely irrelevant you're completely irrelevant heed the words of marcus arbery who asked the, and you think you did something right <laughs> i don't think god be with you but i hope he but but uh, but i don't think he is uh albert benjamin thomas he passed away in 1986 that's one of the killers according to uh norman butler who was one of the killers leon davis another killers talmage hair that's the one that told it william bradley Pause. That's shotgun man. 12 gauge shotgun. That's mm -hmm. the one that the whole who killed Malcolm X narrative was built around. Remember, they had Cory Booker took a picture with him and rassing him. Oh, yeah, I know everybody knows shotgun man. Rass like everybody knows shotgun man. Everybody know he changed his life, he turned his life around. Okay. Cory Booker was oh, I didn't oh, I do it. I did in that moment when they interview in the documentary, Senator Booker. And Mayor Baraka, you hear the difference between the social structure and the governance structure. <laughs> I, I, I didn't, oh, really? Is that, oh, hmm, that's him? Oh, that's me in the picture? Oh, that's him. Hmm, that's him. Right. <laughs> uh, everybody knows shotgun, man. <laughs> this is a governance question. And the governance question, now we're going to turn to it. The governance question is far more complicated. 
whether it be Kyle Rittenhouse and Kenosha or the exoneration of these two brothers, thank you for your service. Why? Because you were wonderful scapegoats. Thank you very much. One of y'all did. So you, we, we're, you're beyond our reach to pat ourselves on the back and, and reach you. The point is that's all social structure conversation and it's a distraction. They're trying to keep stitched together their little experiment that's continuing to erode. In Wisconsin, their clan adjacent friends, whether it be the judge and the jury, simply are not playing ball. That's what this guy writing this book about globalization is worried about. That's why the thing gonna go to hell. In New York, it looks like they did the right thing. But the wrong thing is how they got put in jail in the first place. And in Georgia, Marcus Arbery is reminding us that there is right and wrong and these people not on your team. But I ain't going to look for them to take them out. I'm just going to keep moving along because we're going to win. Now let's keep going. Wilbur McKinley, presumed deceased. He's the fifth. So again, Albert Benjamin Thomas, Leon Davis, Talmadge Hare, William Bradley, Wilbur McKinley, according to Talmadge Hare, who was the one that confessed was in jail. Those are the five killers of Malcolm X. And it's been known since the 60s. Mm. Henry Louis Gates. I want to raise my Nubia cup to you, brother. Because <laughs> I respect your game. I do. Because you ask yourself, well, if it was known, and then if you had media people, because remember now, Gil Noble, you know, uh, it's like that scene in The Godfather Part 3 when they go to the Vatican and uh, Michael Corleone is like, I need somebody who with the mob and who is with... Uh, the church and who can deal with and then it's oh get uh i think it was get the case yeah he, he walk in both worlds see gil scott heron is like karen honey y'all walk in both worlds <laughs> in other words you can walk in all even world. skip gates walks primarily in the social structure world but he does it with an endearing kind of governance gloss effect but everybody see we see you bruh there's no story there who killed malcolm x now Here's, however, why a, a, a piece like that would even be necessary, going back to the book of Burrell. In the contemporary society we live in, our curated capacity for memory is so short-term that most of the stuff we talking about now is new to most people in here right now. So that documentary looks like new information. And everybody, including Zach, everybody tearing their hair out, Zach, Kondo was interviewed for that documentary. Zach said they spent a whole day with him at his college where he teaches. Oh, and by the way, I want to mention this as well. This is very important. The, the things I showed you all, those three books, those are all published by Black people, Black publishers, including the two most prominent and oldest Black presses in the United States, Black Classic Press, Coates, out of Baltimore, and Third World Press, the Mabutis, out of Chicago. That means something. This book, Zach Kondo publishes with the Black press. He did this through Nubia Press. And at the time he wrote it, he was working at Bowie State University. In other words, a Black university. Not only was he working there, he thanks all of these Black people that he interviewed, that he talked to, that he worked with in Black institutions, Black formations. Guess who talked to the brothers who were convicted? Zach Kondo. In fact, I don't even I don't even have time. You know what I'm gonna do? Y'all can pause this. I want y'all to look at this acknowledgement page 
and go through it at your leisure once you've paused and see all the names and see all the names you will recognize that he talked to, that he worked with. You're going to see some familiar names and you're going to see most of the names involved in this. So these were black presses. I, I, wanted, I just wanted to say that. Now, now we get social structure question. Who is Malcolm to the social structure? Who are these killers to the social structure? Who are these people you wrongly convicted to the social structure? The governance structure asks, who are, who, who are they to us? Who are they to each other? And that's where we're going to spend the little remaining time we have right now. So the first thing it, that happened with the exoneration, I went looking for the accounts from the people I trust. The first two people I went to get, of course, one's an ancestor, one still swinging with both fists, lives down the street here in D.C. And that is Earl Grant, who was Malcolm's lieutenant, and Peter Bailey, who was Malcolm's lieutenant. Earl Grant, one of the people that Zach talked to, Earl Grant is included in this book, Malcolm X, The Man of His Times, John Henry Clark, R. Jegna, the great John Clark. In fact, I got a, there's a tribute, the 24th annual tribute to John Henry Clark is this evening in New York. Uh, we're doing it virtually. Uh, the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilization. Shout out to the people, Latrella Thornton, Sister Genevieve and all them. Uh, that's tonight at four. So I got to, in fact, we get off here. I'm going to switch gears and get ready for that. Um, but Earl Grant, and I, and, and I knew Earl Grant, actually, or he's an ancestor now. Uh, Earl Grant wrote a piece in John Clark's book, The Last Days of Malcolm X. This is what happened. Earl Grant was there when the firebombing of Malcolm X's house came. He said, it was around 3 a.m. on the morning of February 14, 1965, that my sleep was pierced by the ringing of the telephone. Trouble somewhere. It was one of the brothers from Long Island. Come right away, he told me, because the minister's house was on fire. Malcolm and his family had escaped unharmed, but the home was badly damaged. I told the brother I'd be there in less than an hour. I called some of the brothers who lived in Harlem. Here we go, Kyle Rittenhouse. Keep him in your mind, but in the social structure, because he's trapped there forever now. But I want to make this bridge and just remember this when we talk about it. He says, the next line he writes, he says, we and our rifles... headed to Queens. Hmm. We and our rifles and our rifles. Right? Conjunction junctions, what's your function? Hooking up words and making them run right. <laughs> Out of the frying pan and into the fire. <laughs> oh, oh, we and our rifles headed to Queens. Conjunction junction. We Black Lives Matter and our rifles. Black Lives Matter. What's up, baby? What's up? Yeah. What's the law now? Self-defense? Got it. We. Yeah. Okay. You think you did something right? The whole guy's with you, but uh, I don't think he is. All right. We and our rifles headed to Queens. We found Brother Malcolm safe. Very happy to see us. He had sent Betty and the children to shelter at a neighbor's house. It's now 4 a.m. The fire was out by now. So Earl Grant, if you ever seen Earl Grant, and I, of course, met him many, many years after this. He was an elder. But even then, in L.A., one time we were at a conference, Earl made this whole presentation on astronomy and Kemet. He got in deep into studying classical Africa, Baba Earl. He always had his camera. He had a form of a camera. He had his camera that night. Malcolm asked Earl Grant to go in and take pictures of everything, and he does. And then as Malcolm's describing what happened, I'll read it. 
Earl Grant says, Brother Malcolm began to describe the evening. He said that he had been more tired than usual and had taken a sleeping pill so that we could get some rest. Without being disrespectful, I completely lost my temper. I asked him if he knew what he had done, that if he had wanted to sleep that deeply, he could have called me first and some of us brothers would have come out and stood guard around his house all night. He looked down at me with that big fatherly smile of his and I just gave up and walked off mumbling to myself. Bruh, if you wanted to sleep, call us. We got the strap. <laughs> you can't sleep in that. He bombed your house, man. And, and Earl, if you ever, if you know Earl Grant, some of y'all watching this probably did. He was a little guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he, you know, so I can see, you know, Malcolm's like 6'4". <laughs> Earl Grant might have been five, six, maybe five, five. You know, what's wrong with you? But he's giving the work to Malcolm because we got the strap. Now, Malcolm had a strap too, but watch this. Watch this. Let me see if I can get to it quick. Was it, because I put them together. Oh, oh, here we go. Here we go. Malcolm kept two guns in the house. A rifle we had given him and a pistol given by a friend. Okay. Now you've seen that famous picture of him with the carbine looking through the windows or whatever by any means necessary. Great t-shirt. He had two guns. Watch this. In his haste to save his family, he had picked up the pistol instead of the rifle. Upon hearing the continuing commotion in the house, he had tried to shoot, but the pistol would not fire. Later, investigation proved that this was a gun bought from a phony gun salesman in Harlem before the so-called riot. I told Malcolm that I had found out that all of those guns had broken firing pins. Wait, there was a there was a riot in Harlem? Right. This is the so-called Harlem riot, 1964. Keep that in mind. Oh, this is going to be so much fun. Because this is why we have to have the momentum of memory. If your memory starts with today or last summer, then yeah, they can write stories and books and talk about the summer of reckoning and racial reckoning and we've got to work together. And and then Kyle Rittenhouse goes and the president of the United States says, oh yeah, well, the system worked. We don't like necessarily the, the, the vice president like, well, damn, I got to say something shit because I don't like this. Even though I used to be police in California, I don't like this. I don't like, oh, everybody calm down. You want to be president, right? More than them 15 seconds I gave to you last week. You, mm-hmm. you be president, right? Okay, so you need to keep in line. Meanwhile, my Aubrey's I mean, Marcus Aubrey, Mark, Ahmad Aubrey's daddy is like, yeah, no, that's cool. I know what we pray to and what you pray to. I, I don't have to pretend. I'm from the South. We do a little, do a little different down here. And so Malcolm has a pistol don't work that don't work, but he bought it before the turn up that happened in Harlem. That's going to become important in a second. Now, Earl Grant says, we walked to the front of the house to talk to the deputy fire inspector and the deputy police inspector. Since it was cold this February morning and since Malcolm had begun to cough, I insisted that we get out of the damp, bitter air. The four of us went to sit in the police squad car. Who is that? Brother Malcolm, myself, and the two deputy officers. They began to question Malcolm. They asked Malcolm, how could anyone else but him have burned his house? This sounds like John Ali. Keep that name in the back of your mind. These two characters were trying to blame Malcolm for trying to kill his entire family. I could hardly believe my ears. First, they claimed they had not seen any bottles in the house. Later, one was supposed to have been found on the dresser in the oldest girl's room. Malcolm proceeded calmly to tell the story. Now watch this. He told how he had heard the explosion, awakened his family, and led them out to safety in the backyard. Then Malcolm looked at the deputy inspector of police right in the eye and told him, that he had tried to fire a pistol into his house. 
I waited for some reaction. Here was Malcolm X, the man who the entire power structure was against, telling a police officer that he had tried to shoot a pistol a few minutes earlier. The very possession of a pistol in New York requires a police permit, which the whole world knew Malcolm did not possess. Here was a golden opportunity for the power structure to move legally against Malcolm. I'm certain this deputy police inspector had been thoroughly instructed in the provisions of the Sullivan Law on pistols, yet he acted as though he was not hearing Malcolm. Brother Malcolm repeated about three or four times that he had tried to fire shots into the burning house and the police officer's hearing did not seem to improve out any at all. I was later to remind Malcolm of this. The police department's refusal to understand English and to question or arrest Malcolm about the pistol is understandable when one examines the strange actions on the day of the assassination. More on this later. Who killed Malcolm X? I know Skip Gates and Abdul Rahman them want to put it all off on the Nation of Islam with a little gesture toward the FBI and CIA. Let's be very clear. Heard and told y'all it was black men. The brothers came out the Newark Mosque. That's something we, gonna, we need to talk about in terms of the governance structure. But the social structure that fomented it? You could have arrested Malcolm that night. Now, it would have been an outcry. It would have been crazy. The man that told you, I tried to fire that pistol three times. But let me switch to the elder who's still alive. Very good friends with Earl Grant. This is the great A. Peter Bailey. There he is, a young man, witnessing Malcolm X, the master teacher, a memoir, A. Peter Bailey. Oh, the bridge that would be built now. I left Earl Grant before we get to the following week. And just so we keep the timeline straight, we talked about this before at length, so I won't talk about it here except to just mention it very quickly, which is, I'm on the clock, that the house is firebombed. Malcolm gets on a plane to go to Detroit the next day to deliver the speech that the Henry brothers, Milton and Gaiti, record, which is why we have it, Mess to the Grassroots. Uh, they changed their names, as I said, Gaiti and Amari Obadelli. I knew Amari Obadelli well. This is the, the, this the, uh, the Malcolm X Society, Republic of New Africa and Cobra, that whole formation, all those formations. Um, in fact, uh, one, of the one of the prominent younger members of those formations ends up following them to Mississippi where they set up. And that is, of course, the lawyer Chokwe Lumumba. His son now is the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, in case people want to make some connections there. And you should. They call it the most radical city in America. And they should because this is a very human centered thing. They're doing some different. Anyway. Within a week, Malcolm is dead. He comes back. He has to go to Detroit by himself because as Earl Grant says, Baba Earl, and they ain't had the money to go with him. They didn't want him to go by himself, but he said, I'm, I'm going out. He said, I'm, I'm even going to wear this top coat I got out of the fire. It smells like smoke to let them know how serious this is. He's, go, he's going out there thinking that the nation did this. But then he's the more he thinks about it, he says, you know what? And eventually... In fact, I'm gonna pull it. I'm gonna show y'all another book in a minute. This is Benjamin Kareem. This is the brother who made the final prayer over Malcolm's grave. This was his other lieutenant at the time. He's known as Benjamin Goodman, remembering Malcolm, the story of Malcolm X from the inside of the mosque. Benjamin Kareem was one of the original members of the uh, the 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 uh, Muslim Mosque Incorporated. Remember, Malcolm starts the organization of Afro American Unity in conversation with those Af African leaders in uh, in Africa, where he has private audiences with a number of heads of state in Africa. And then he starts the Muslim Mosque Incorporated, which is for the religious practice. Now, put that in the side pocket. Here we go. Let's go to Baba Peter. Chapter 8. The aftermath of the assassin. No, 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 no. Come on, son. Get your stuff together now. Chapter 7. In the Audubon Ballroom. February 21st, 1965. 
Peter Bailey. February 21st, 1965 was a very cold, sunny day. I'm sorry. Yeah, sunny winter day in New York City. There was no snow on the ground, as I remember, but it was very cold and very clear. That Sunday morning, I followed my regular routine, one of which was reading the Sunday New York Times. We and our rifles headed to Queens. One of the uh, things was, was reading the Sunday New York Times. I came across an article about an organization, the Deacons of Defense and Justice, of which I was totally unaware. I still believe that theirs was the most creative name to come out of the civil rights movement. Based in Louisiana, it declared that its mission was to protect black people and some whites who were demonstrating to protest the white supremacist terrorism that was rampant throughout the South. Racists would often physically attack the nonviolent protesters with impunity while the so-called law enforcement officials looked on. As I read the article, I thought, quote, this is just the kind of self-defense that Brother Malcolm has been advocating, end quote. I decided to clip it and take it to the OAU rally scheduled for later that afternoon. Let me put a stick in that right quick, because you know what I did? I went looking for that article. I, I never, never, never questioned Peter Bailey's memory. Peter Bailey, who was a, a correspondent for Ebony Magazine, Peter Bailey, who wrote the theater, annual theater issue and edited for Black World uh, with Hoyt Fuller. Very important figure, very important figure. So, of course, I know that he's got to be right. I just got to go find it. So I found it. And when I found it, <laughs> when I found it, Lord have mercy. Let me pull it up over here. I think I got it on my computer. Yep. I said, I know Peter's uh, memory is great. This is from the Sunday, February 21st, uh, New York Times, 1965. The day Malcolm is killed, where Peter Bailey says, I was reading this and I clipped this article and gave it to Malcolm. He then goes to the Audubon Ballroom, comes backstage, gives it to Malcolm. Malcolm reads the article and said, yeah, this is exactly what I'm talking about, brother. This is, this is something I would say. Peter Bay is like, yep, I know it's something you would say. These deacons for defense and justice are no joke in Louisiana. And Malcolm says, you know what? I just accepted a um, just accepted an invitation from the her Gil Noble say students from the students to come to speak at a rally in Jackson, Mississippi, next week. Bailey writes in the book that he's excited. And in fact, then Malcolm told them, I'm going to be traveling a little bit, but I'm going to be around the next half year or so, next six months, because we got to build this. Because every time they would have a meeting at the Audubon, which Bailey describes as as big as a football field in terms of people. And when Malcolm would be there in town for the OAU meetings, he said, I mean, we might have five, six hundred people. There were over 400 today got killed by most accounts. Um, but he says when he's not there, we might have 150 people, 200 people tops. So we were very excited that Malcolm was there. And Peter Bailey says, he says it in the book. He says it to me. He says anybody who will listen to him, Peter Bailey, who, and he was also in the documentary, but Peter Bailey is like, so people saying Malcolm knew he was going to die. He said, he said, I don't, I don't believe that. Cause I talked to him that day, like minutes before. I mean, he was planning for the future. And so it's very romantic to have this idea, he's like a Christ figure. In fact, and I had, and that's the book I couldn't find. I was trying to put my hands on it, is the book that uh, Spike Lee uh, published uh, the script. And 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 the and with Ralph Wiley, the great journalist, wrote the story of how they made the film Malcolm X. And if you remember, you know, when Malcolm drives up to the Audubon, in, in the movie, you hear, I was born by the river. 
in a little tent and you hear him you know so the whole idea is almost like a christ coming to calvary to you know i'm gonna give up my life for y'all peter bailey is like this man was talking about going to jackson for the rally the students asking me talking about being in town the next six months to go be i don't really get that you know so y'all take that christ mythology out of this kind of he was gonna sacrifice himself for the people this man he didn't he didn't want to die so i looked at the article here's the headline fred Powlich, special to the new york times headline sunday february 21st 1965 armed negroes make jonesboro an unusual town keep kyle rittenhouse in your mind with his little gun running around that didn't told you in uh in wisconsin you can roll from other states with your weapons and if somebody roll on you you have self-defense armed negroes make jonesboro an unusual town don't get caught up with uh oh they showed us again oh everybody calm down judge turn them loose bruce schroeder just told you so we all know the rules don't apply the same but neither should the strategies on how you use the rules either now all right and then more importantly in the governance structure we understand that malcolm who had two guns in the house neither of whom he should have had by the new york state laws then told the police over and over i tried to shoot a gun tonight right in there and they act like they ain't hearing why do you know something we don't know you damn right they do when you read conspiracies that condo when you read jared and, and todd's book and all the people writing in there or hockey and them's book when you all the people writing in there you damn right they knew why because people like zach been going through all the fbi files that netflix come on now we'll get there so peter's reading this paper he clips it out so i went and looked at the paper and i didn't want to look at the paper just on the computer i wanted to see the virtual image you know time new york times has time machines you can look at the page the way it looked to peter the article armed Negroes make Jonesboro an unusual town is on one side. Next to it is a column. Wallace orders night march ban. Direct state troopers to act in Selma and Marion. Selma, Alabama, February 20th. Governor George C. Wallace ordered state troopers today to stop night marches by Negroes in Selma and nearby Marion. Negroes have been demonstrating in the two communities for a speed up in registration of voters. So he's going to ban night marches. What does that have to do with today? pay attention remember portland remember the remember what was going on out there in in oregon during the summer of reckoning remember the calls well uh, for the for the white nationals was in the and in the uh in the white house at the time to send out the national guard if the mayor but in other words what we're seeing now is not only not new we know what happens next so while rittenhouse can go from illinois to wisconsin with his gun you out there protesting, and if you got the wrong person in the White House, they may send the troops in. And I'm looking at the at the pairing here. Oh, and by the way, you know what uh, Wallace says he has as precedent for banning night marches, which is an encroachment on free speech? He says, this is the same action taken by New York City in banning night demonstrations and marches, he said. And then the Times writes, during the, rioting in Har during the rioting in Harlem last July, the city of New York obtained an injunction against three militant organizations. The injunction prohibited demonstrations day or night that were, quote, likely to induce civil rebellion, period, end quote. Remember Malcolm bought the gun and Earl said he bought it just before the stuff that happened in Harlem? That's what he's talking about. You want to bet one of them organizations was a nation of Islam? Remember black extremist groups? When they tell you, oh, we, we don't have COINTELPRO anymore. Well, what's a black extremist group? Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Ray, Director Ray. What the hell is this? 
Congressional Black Caucus asked him, at least they found a voice now, 1979. Apparently they didn't have enough heart to try to clear these brothers, but at least when they asked the, the sitting director of the, CI, uh, the FBI, what are these black extremist groups? Now you had the hillbilly horde tear up your whole United States Capitol. And the white nationalists is like, not only are we not going to prosecute them, we're just going to try to hold our breath for another six months and we can really take all this back shit. We might make them all uh, ambassadors to the white countries or something. <laughs> Y'all don't understand where you live. Now, I'm not already that understand where you live, but apparently everybody else doesn't. You think this is a nation. This ain't no nation. Wallace is on the, on the New York Times the same day Malcolm X is killed saying we're going to ban marches in Alabama and we're going to base it on what y'all did in New York, which also reveals that as Malcolm X said, you talking about the South, anything south of the Canadian border is the South when it comes to you. All right. When you read that article, I had to go pull off the shelf two of my favorites, the old standbys. We talked about many times, my man, uh, my friend, Akinyele Umojas, we will shoot back armed resistance in the Mississippi freedom movement. And the one we'll quote today, my man, Charlie Cobb, this nonviolent stuff will get you killed on the deacons for defense. Now, I could have pulled some other books, but I love the way Charlie Cobb, because Charlie was there. Who are the deacons for defense? The deacons for defense were born in Louisiana. In fact, I'll read from the New York Times. Jonesboro, Louisiana, the organization called the Deacons for Defense and Justice was quietly organized last summer, the summer of 1964. The same summer stuff was going on. Who organized them? Percy Lee Bradford, according to the uh, New York Times, a stockroom worker and founder and president of the Deacons, said harassment from the Ku Klux Klan and allied groups had decreased markedly since the Deacons made their philosophy known. So far, the guns have not been fired. What does that mean? Black people said, oh, Bruce Schroeder. They didn't say Bruce Schroeder in 1965 or 64, but you get my point. Oh, y'all not going to protect us? No problem. The Deacons for Defense and Justice, where many of them were black veterans of World War II and the Korean War, who had come back home to Louisiana. There were branches in Mississippi as well. And they strapped up and they protected. At that time was the Congress of Racial Equality. Those workers had come into northern Louisiana. They called it the top of the boot, about 50 miles west of Monroe, Louisiana. Those of you who know where Grambling is, y'all know where that is. These brothers was like, don't worry about the Klan. We got you. The white workers who came with, in fact, let me just read what one of the white workers said. Let me see. Um, let me see if it's in here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, watch this. Watch this. Uh, a white visitor to the core office this week was observed entering the neighborhood. A phone call immediately went to Charles Fenton, a 23-year-old white New York native who is a core field worker. This is in Jonesboro where they founded this. Jonesboro is a town that was about a third black. This is what young Charles Fenton, 23-year-old white native. And you think about Charles Fenton, you can think about those white boys that, uh, those white men rather, that uh, Kyle Rittenhouse killed and got away with. Allies, in other words. Charles Fenton, quote, they just wanted to make sure everything was all right, end quote, said the tall, slim youth with a smile as he called off the potential alert. Had the visitor desired to make trouble, several dozen deacons would have been expected to arrive at the core office within minutes, carrying guns and portable citizens band radios. We and our guns went to Queens. All right. Among them, would have been a young Negro man, a former platoon sergeant in the army who is Fent Mr. Fenton's self-assigned personal bodyguard. <laughs> I wouldn't let anything happen to that boy, said the bodyguard. He's just like a brother to me. 
just in case you think this is just about black people. So these brothers got the strap. They see some strange white man trying to mess around the office where these young people are. And the call immediately goes out. They had eyes on the place. Oh, everything good? Oh, no, no, he's cool. All right. Now watch this. Here is the, here's the young man, Fenton, the white worker. As a core worker, Congress of Racial Equality, by the way, Mr. Fenton believes in nonviolence. He has had to carefully explain his feelings to the deacons, some of whom could not understand why Mr. Fenton didn't want them to bring their weapons into the office. Quote, I hope that they will become a civic organization, he said, end quote, bettering the community and eventually making the defense part of it obsolete. They want to extend their efforts to include other things, negotiating with downtown, becoming more active in Jonesboro's political life. But still, no one can tell what would have happened here if the deacons hadn't formed their own ideas of protection, end quote. So Mr. Fenton understand he believe in America. That's a good thing. I hope when I, I'm nonviolent. Okay, you be nonviolent. We never had to fire these guns, but now they know we got them. Now, let's go to Charlie. Because Charlie Cobb tells all the stories. Oh, man, let me see if I can find this. Oh, man. Oh, wait, you know what? No, nah. I'm going to go over here. This is a great book to get to give you the whole history of it. Negroes and the Gun. This is Nicholas Johnson's book. Remember, we talked about uh, uh, Robert Williams, Negroes with Guns. He riffs on this, but watch this. Now, this is 1965. Peter Bailey sees this article, takes it to Malcolm the day he is assassinated, and Malcolm is like, this is what I'm talking about. This is a governance structure conversation. We need to be armed. Remember, Malcolm has learned a lesson because a week before, Earl Grant and them boys came out to the house like, man, when Earl was like, what's wrong with you, man? If you wanted to go to sleep, you should have called us. Nobody, this place needs to be guarded all the time because this is going to, we're going to move in a second to the more delicate part of this conversation. Now, this is from Nick Rose and the Gun. In fact, let me just show you a picture of another brother. This is uh, Ernest Thomas who was one of the deacons sitting in a church meeting in Jonesboro. So if you want to know what the deacons, these are young guys in their 20s, many of them. They got the two-way walkie-talkies. They got the guns. Now, if you remember, in 1966, James Foreman, who would integrate, I'm sorry, James Foreman, what am I saying? Uh, James Meredith, who had integrated the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss, Remember, he uh, tried to go to Ole Miss and they had riots and stuff. What's that boy's name who's still alive? Who's the United States? Trent Lott was a cheerleader at the at Ole Miss at the time. The governor of Mississippi says, you know, we're going to have segregation. Then they, then they start burning stuff up. People are killed. They send the National Guard in. James Meredith, four years later, decides he's going to walk across Mississippi to show he ain't got no fear. And get he, shot. Didn't he get shot? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, why are we let? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. You, you know, <laughs> no, no, no. that's important. That's important because <laughs> we shouldn't laugh, right? But no, we should let this the governance conversation. Now, we, got, we got Nubia. I mean, it's, he, he lives, which is why we can laugh, right? Right, you know, what I'm saying, it ain't like Mega Everest when that punk the Beth shot Byron Little Beckwood shot him in his back in his under his portico with an elephant back. gun from blocks away. Coward, My coward. Man. My Coward, man, she right. My man Arbery said it. You use the gun you use on an animal. Why? Because there are no humans involved. When Angie, when y'all were talking, to Angie told y'all about how that gun tore that man bicep off. This little punk, ridden house. You punk. Go with God, your God, because we ain't praying to the same God. And uh, watch your back, baby, or not, because we ain't gonna ain't, don't start none, won't be none. But Judge Turnham Loose Bruce then told us that, you know, open season is cool. I got a permit. Gets to the point. Meredith is shot. 
They take him to the hospital in Memphis and all the civil rights leaders go now. Now, there are a number of accounts. James Foreman and making the black revolutionaries. My man, Stokely Carmichael, ready for revolution. Any of the ones you read and then all the living SNCC folk who are around. Um, oh, I, I should. Mm, 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 mm. Clay McCarthy, uh, not Clay Carson. He's He was there. I mean, he's one of the people he's written to. But I'm thinking about uh, what you call daddy um, in South Carolina. The one who negotiated the 88, 80 million. What's his name? Uh, Bakari Sellers. Oh, Bakari Sellers. Bakari Sellers. Yes. Yeah, Cleve Sellers and Tony Carmichael like this, right? They locked Cleve Sellers up. Y'all go look at the Orangeburg Massacre in South Carolina, among other things. They accused him of starting this kind of thing. Cleveland Sellers, just a beautiful human being. You know, once the president was Voorhees, and last time I saw him, in fact, was in Columbia, South Carolina, a few years ago. He'd come over to an ASCOT conference we had. But at any rate, Cleve Sellers writes about it in his book, The River of No Return. So they had the bedside of Meredith trying to discuss what they want to do. Now, SNCC ain't really trying to do no, you know, they they are long-term in places like Mississippi and Alabama. You know, as my man, uh, um, Hassan Jeffries writes in his book, Bloody Lounge, or, or or more importantly, when you talk to the people themselves, that's how the Lowndes County Freedom Organization started. In fact, Cl Cliff Albright was making this point, Cliff and Latosha. When you're in a march, it ain't just about walking down the middle of the street. You go and knock on doors as you're marching. Why don't y'all come with us? Why, oh, why don't you register to vote? Or what do y'all do? What do we, how can we help you? The march is really about creating critical mass to do other things so while this white country lawyer in georgia is like well i don't want no black preachers down here everybody descends on on that town and then while you're there you're beginning to build connections with the community is there because it ain't about this trial the trial is the excuse to be there so you see this kind of this is movement organized this is what bob moses his whole life he spent you know, when you read his book, Radical Equations, the first half of it is the organizing tradition, which he then converts into the way that you enter the conversation about changing curriculum with the algebra project. It's a very deliberate sense that you're building community. This isn't performance with no, you know, disrespect to my friend Derek Johnston and NAACP engaged in a critique and saying, you know, what y'all doing is performance. Bro, you know better than that. But at the same time, we understand that there's always been tension between the national NAACP and the branches, which is what you're going to see even here. So as they're at the bedside, you got two cats. It's like, I don't know about this march, man. And I don't know about doing it with all of y'all. And that is who? Whitney Young, Urban League. We talked about Whitney Young and Roy Wilkins, NAACP National, who has already had tensions with Mega Evers before Mega Evers is assassinated because Evers also had the strap, including in the trunk of his car that day, if that punk hadn't shot him from across the street, he probably would have blown his head off this military veteran because he kept his strap. He just couldn't get to it. Cause see, as Malcolm said, they shoot you in the back. Cause that's what, that's who they are. That punk came over from Illinois with, with a gun bigger than he was. Cause he had the protection of the white police that had deputized him to do it. And on the other end, he had the protection of the judge and the jury who immunized him. And he think he gonna roam his ass back over there with another strap. But guess what? We got the message, baby. We got the message. Somebody out getting a gun license right now. So the point is they're at the bedside. My man's is recovering. And what happens? They start debating whether or not, in fact, let me just read it. As people were arriving for the strategy session at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, now they move over to the Lorraine, a van full of deacons pulled up and unloaded, some of them carrying ammunition, bandoliers, and semi-automatic 30 to 60 caliber M1 Garland rifles. The World War II infantry rifle that George Patton called the greatest battle implement ever devised. Pause. Earl Grant tries to tell Malcolm Dude, the rifle you got is a repeating rifle. You got to every time. He said, at least take my M1. 
So you got an automatic. Let's keep going. The leader of the group, Ernest Thomas, you saw his picture, was on relatively cordial terms with King, who referred to Thomas as Deke. See, Dr. King and that stone down there on the National Mall is beautiful. Dr. King and them every January 15th when they trick you into painting walls at the school that your tax money already paid for and calling it service. Uh, you know, I mean, Dr. King is a, is a nonviolent apostle. It's all very nice. He talks to this young cat who's one of the leaders of the Deacon's defense. He ain't calling him by his name. His nickname for him was Deke. This is a governance structure. You've proven in the social structure, you can't tell our stories. You've proven, and some of y'all been recruited over there to act like you representing us. I'm sorry, Dr. Gates, I have a lot of respect for you, brother. You've done a lot of incredible work and I will continue to uh, be a student of yours as I learn, you know? At the same time, we can't trust your framework. I mean, that should be obvious by now, but we continue. Hosea Williams, one of King's aides, objected immediately to the deacon, scolding Thomas, quote, well, I'm gonna tell you right now, there ain't gonna be no deacons on the march, end quote. Thomas countered that the national organizations risked the losing of allegiance of grassroots folk, quote, because you getting people hurt and you get back on them goddamn planes and you fly off and forget about them, end quote. This is what your brother tells them, which is why Charlie Cobb named his book. This is what the old man told Dr. King. I, I hear what you're saying, but this nonviolent stuff will get you killed. So you're trying to organize the people. The people are not stupid. The people gonna get their guns. Everybody in Mississippi got a gun. So you want me to walk down the middle of the damn road with no gun? Watch this. Watch how King settles this, y'all. Martin King, who only met Malcolm X one time when they were both in town at the United States Capitol to observe the lobbying and the uh, debate over the passing of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Malcolm was there at the behest of his friend, Adam Clayton Powell. Dr. King was in town and they bumped into each other in the hall. Ralph Abernathy tells a story. Abernathy tells a story in his book and the walls came tumbling down. I'm looking at it over there. And he says, you know, in that moment, they took the picture. That's that picture everybody sees. Malcolm, Martin, that picture that, you know, Smiley had and do the right thing. So that's the only time they met. But Malcolm did talk to Coretta when he went down there after that King got put in jail in Albany. He had accepted an, uh, an invitation to come talk. The young people wanted to come to Jackson for a rally. And he's thinking, now we're going to move in. And when Peter Bailey showed him this article, he said, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about him and Fannie Lou Hamer. And he said, we need a Mau Mau in the South. We're going to send people down there. I'm sending a telegram to Martin Luther King and the rest of them saying, if y'all can't handle it, I got some brothers and sisters who will. So this is the mentality. Now, who killed Malcolm X? Do you really want to ask that? We know who pulled the trigger, the man that told you the five names. All of them got away with it, except him and the ones that did the bid with him, who he kept trying to tell people didn't do it. They got exonerated this week. And the damn DA in Manhattan, who we're going to talk about in a minute, turns his predecessor, acting like, oh, this is a wonderful, it's a triumph of justice. Ain't no damn triumph of justice. You made three men pay, the one that got killed and the two you put up as a pretense like they did it because you wanted to put the whole thing off on the people that pulled the trigger instead of not only the circumstances, but the very deliberate acts that left Malcolm unprotected on that day. About to say that now in the meeting in the Lorraine, the deacons are there. Hosea Williams and them is like, yeah, we ain't going to do that. And then Roy Wilkins and Brittany Young According to Snoopy Carmichael and them, already trying to back up off it anyway, because they like, eh, I don't know. And watch this. While everybody argued, I'm sorry, let me read it word for word. While everyone argued, King sat on the bed, eating his dinner and listening. <laughs> Finally, he in interjected with a question to Thomas, quote, Deep, you mean you're going to march? End quote. 
It was a judicious move. Thomas responded, quote, I don't have no intention of marching one block in Mississippi, but we're going to be up and down the highways and byways. If somebody gets shot again, they're going to have to, they're going to have, uh, they're going to have somebody to give account for that. End quote. King's handling of the matter showed a deft political touch. With one question, he fashioned a subtle compromise. The march against fear would remain officially nonviolent. There would be no photographs of deacons marching with guns. The theme of nonviolence would be protected and projected across the airwaves. But in the background, Negroes with guns would be ready. Y'all know how many of them documentaries you see with Dr. King and them walking down the middle of the highway and you thinking in your mind, how the hell is the Klan not attacking them? You better go read Dr. Yelly and Charlie's books. You know why? Because these cats is in the bushes, yo. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Kyle. Bring that strap to the next meeting. And when you pick up your gun, you better pray to whatever you pray to, which our might Aubrey daddy then told you ain't what we pray to. That people ain't studying now what their ancestors did. Dr. King wasn't touched until he was touched many times because the people with the strap was in the bushes. And as I've heard elders say many times, the clan was back there in the bushes on that side and we was over here in the bushes on this side. So while they singing, the cameras got one thing and King settled the whole thing. He said they eating this dinner. So D, y'all gonna march? I ain't marching one block in Mississippi, but if somebody gets somebody pull out a gun, I'm gonna tell you right now, they're gonna pay for it. No problem. That's all. So just let me just think about this. Very important. Anyway, let me let me bring let me bring this to a close because I want a couple of things. Uh that day. So let me let me do that right quick. In fact, I want I, I'm just gonna I'm gonna show you the book, so I want to speed this up because I want to say at least maybe five minutes on Thanksgiving. Um, since we're coming up on the holiday. Um, and maybe we'll do this on office hours. We can talk more about it. In the Audubon Ballroom that day, Earl, uh, Earl Grant talks about it, but uh, Peter Bailey was there, but he was in the lobby. Malcolm called him backstage. He then went back. He sent him back out in the lobby to wait on this brother. This minister was, was coming, raise money for them to uh, to um, for their for clothes for them, for Betty and them. And he says. And they both say that Malcolm was down that day and a little erratic. They just fired behind his house. I mean, it's all reason for him to be emotional. But then he also says, he tell that's what I wanted to go. He told Benjamin Kareem, this is what he told his mans who warmed up for him that day. He told Kareem this. He said, let me see if I can find it quickly. He said, uh, here we go. He said, I'm going to stop saying it was the nation. Because I know what they're capable of and I know what they're not capable of. And I don't think they're capable of some of the things I've seen. And he's talking about his international travels and then he's seeing here because there were several attempts on his life. In fact, Benjamin Kareem talks about they were in Boston. And they got into a car like like a movie kind of car battle with because uh, they were in Boston at Ella's house, his half sister where he stayed when he was a youngster. Cause they, she headed up to OAAU in Boston and everywhere we go and we see in these hit squads. In fact, there's another story where one of the reporters is in the, I think it was Chuck Stone, Philadelphia uh, uh, journalist, as you know, Chuck Stone's like, I, we got out the elevator one place. I went around the corner and I seen this little dude with this gun 
a shotgun under his coat. He saw me and scurried away. He said, now if Malcolm had come around that corner first, they was going to kill him. And I'm, by they, I mean members of the Nation of Islam. As I said, as Johnny Clark always said, in some stories, it ain't no good guys. So it ain't like the nation wasn't involved. Members of the nation were. It was the Newark Mosque. He names the names, okay? And so here's where, here's where I wanted to go, though, with it. He said, he said, as he sat there, I mean, as he stood there over Malcolm, Malcolm is dying now. As we, we, we talked about Yuri Koshiyama cradling him. And he says, uh, Benjamin Kareem says, then all at once it left me, the weight on my shoulders. And I felt a great relief come over me. Malcolm's relief from all this suffering. Death ends a thing on time. Whatever may be the instruments to bring it about, when it comes, it comes on time. I reread that and thought about Ahmad Arbery's father. You, you not, you not said your son is dead, of course, but he's resting now. Now we're going to deal with y'all. And then he goes on. Now here's where it comes. Benjamin Kareem, who was there, Benjamin Kareem says, not until four or five days later did the police pick up Thomas 15X Johnson and Norman 3X Butler, both of whom were charged with the murder in the case of Malcolm X. These are the brothers they exonerated last week. Neither Johnson nor Butler had gone with Malcolm when he left the nation. So either of them could have probably been enlisted by the NOI to assassinate Malcolm under the Muslim Code of Honor. Neither of them, however, he was there. Now, I didn't know Benjamin Kareem. I know Peter Bailey. I knew... Uh, um, um, Baba Earl Grant and others. I knew uh, for many years in Philadelphia, the great Muriel Feelings, um, who ran the Pan-African program at Temple for many years, Temple University. She was there that day in the Audubon. And here's what Kareem says. Neither of them, or neither of them, if you want to say, however, had attended the rally at the Audubon that Sunday. If they had, I would have spotted them from the platform when I was opening up. Lukeman or any of the other brothers at the door would have recognized them if they had entered the ballroom as any current NOI member was considered suspect by us. Both Johnson and Butler would have been checked for weapons at the door and all likelihood been barred from the meeting in March 1965. I testified both to the assistant district attorney. Come on, Vance. And before a grand jury that as I had left the stage, I had not in fact witnessed the assassination and therefore had not seen the assassins themselves, but I nevertheless was certain as I testified further that neither Butler nor Johnson could have been involved in the assassination as neither was present at that day at the Audubon. I stated too that in my view, the assassination, the assassins were NOI Muslims, but they were not members of the New York mosque. Had they been, as I pointed out, Lukman James or any of I, uh, other than Muslim Mosque Incorporated brothers at the meeting would have recognized them. I was not called by the defense to testify at the trial itself even the defense didn't bring it up now we bring it home with two other books you who was there though who was in the room peter bailey in the lobby benjamin kareem opening up who's in the front row on malcolm's on the first rank of malcolm's security detail eugene roberts hmm. it's carl evans book, The Judas Factor, The Plot to Kill Malcolm X. He talks about all the FBI people that were infiltrated in the nation of Islam, including John Ali, so many others. Uh, the brother who on his deathbed, according to uh, my man Les Payne in The Dead Are Rising, the deathbed confession by Minister Joseph at Temple Number no. 7 in New York the day before he died, he, he finally gave it up. Yeah, yeah, we did it. It ain't no mystery, but while you walking around the streets of Newark trying to make it into a whodunit because Henry Louis Gates wants to put all this off on black people, what you have 
undermined is the conspiracy itself. This is what Zach writing about. Let me just go right to that because I see the time. This is a little book. I don't even know if it's still in print. John Potash, The FBI War on Tupac Shakur and Black Leaders. Wait, the FBI war on Tupac. Here we go with some conspiracy theory. Let me just read you something here. This is from chapter eight, Malcolm X's assassination. Panther infiltrators role similar similar to agents in Martin Luther King's. We'll say Martin Luther King for another day because it's equally crazy. Watch this. Here we go. Now, of course, you know, you, you, you know this story, uh, Professor Hunter, and many people watching probably have heard of the, the Panther 21, the New York Panther 21, 1971. They go on trial. One of the people who go on trial is Tupac's mother, Afeni Shakur. Right? Watch this. Among the undercover police agents infiltrating the New York Black Panthers, Eugene, Gene, Roberts, and two others were there from its inception. Bureau of Special Services bossy agent Roberts had formerly infiltrated Malcolm X's Muslim mosque number one. In 1964, Malcolm attempted to rebuild the mosque after Elijah Muhammad excommunicated him. He had started the organization after uni, goes on. After the, uh, it says, after Panther 21 defense attorney, Carol LeCourt, left court, cross-examine Gene Roberts on his testimony regarding the Panthers, because this is a black dude who has infiltrated the Panthers, who they're going to use to try to send Afini Shakur and the other Panthers up for life. He's on the stand. Their defense attorney, this, this lady, has cross-examined Gene Roberts. Then her husband comes up after her, another attorney. Her husband and fellow attorney, Gerald Leftcourt, asked Roberts about a different subject. Quote, isn't it a fact that you helped murder Malcolm X? End quote. Yes, Athene cried out from her chair. This Tupac mama. Mm. Gene Roberts' ass was in the room, but 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 we we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna make Gene Roberts a little complicated in about five minutes. He said, much research back defense attorney left court's accusation. Closer scrutiny of Malcolm X's life leading up to his murder supports the U.S. intelligence orchestrated this assassination. With the compendium of evidence that the United States military intelligence apparatus effected Martin Luther King's assassination, he talks about that in the previous. Oh yeah, that's we'll talk about that another day. It's important to note an FBI memorandum of 3468. That's the Black Messiah. You don't want to stop the rise of the Black Messiah, another Netflix movie where they've done all kind of stuff. But I'm, I'm not going to go through this. I just want to mention a couple of highlights. Afini Shakur's father-in-law, Abba Shakur, was a member of the UNIA, along with Malcolm's parents. And remember, the UNA is where the Federal Intelligence Division, Jager Hoover, cut his eye teeth. The first victim he had was Marcus Garvey. Shout out to my man, Roy Anderson, who just finished his uh, his feature documentary, uh, African Redemption. He's shopping the festivals now. Looking, He's getting work for distribution. I can't wait for the two of you all to talk. Roy has made an incredible documentary on Garvey. It really is remarkable. Uh, Keith David did the narration. I mean, but 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 there's everybody's in Marcus Garvey's son. I mean, it's all kind of stuff, and it's really something. But what, what I'm about to raise, though, is that Eugene, Abba Shakur, her, Afeni's uh, father-in-law, so that would make Tupac's grandfather, was a member of the Garvey movement. Lumumba Shakur, the, 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 her partner, joined the OAAU after his father because that's his daddy, Abba Shakur. He was in the UNIA. He joins the OAAU. He's a member of Malcolm's organization. Guess who else was? Afeni Shakur. Lumumba Shakur, the Shakur family. They are in the OAAU before they're in the Panthers. Eugene Roberts then moves from the OAAU 
to the Panthers. He's on the stand because he's getting ready to try to send the Panthers up. Now, I'm sure Eugene Roberts, if he were still here, would say, wait, 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 wait. So I'm going to give you the other side of it right quick. I said five minutes, but it took a little less than five minutes. So that's, that's, I'm glad to be able to. Eugene Roberts says this. I think I just saw a trial run for an assassination. Why? Because the last speech that Malcolm gave in New York City was at Columbia University. Eugene Roberts is at a speech before the day Malcolm's assassinated. And he says, I'm on the detail. I joined the mosque. Then I left. And now I'm in the OAAU. The brothers trust me, but they don't really trust me. This is one guy, this martial artist who's like Malcolm's man. I know he really don't trust me. He's giving his reports through Bossy to the local New York division, who's then turning it over, local police, to the FBI. Because Hoover has been, they haven't had a file on Malcolm open since the 50s, since the late 50s. Shout out to Mike Wallace, Chris Wallace daddy. Remember he did the hate, the hate, the, the hate that hate produced with Lomax, who I, man, we're going to run out of time. It's a lot of anyway, so here's what happens. Roberts, the young fed, I won't say fed, he ain't the feds, but you know how kids you, you the feds, you the local feds, you are the bossy infiltrator, the black face who they put in there. And he tells them, I think I just saw a dry run for assassination at Temple Malcolm. Just a couple of guys came in, you know, we checked them. Then we went, what does the New York police do? They reduce the number of police on site at the Audubon for the 21st. Roberts is like, they did that because I told them that they didn't really kill him, and I think I just saw the dry run. Mm -hmm. Peter Bailey, in his book, says, I was in the lobby, and I'm telling you right now, the New York police said there were no police in the ballroom. He said, that's a lie. i tell you what I saw. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? So when you say the Nation of Islam, when Benjamin Kareem is like, I know them two wasn't there. Because we would have checked them. They were still in the mosque. And when Bailey is like, the police presence wasn't there, that combines with Malcolm saying, I don't want y'all, I didn't tell y'all this, I don't want y'all frisking them in the same way. Because there's a lot of people who are not Muslim, a lot of people who are not, they just come in to hear me, a lot of these young people, I really want them in here. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that come together and Zach really goes through it well in conspiracies. So, at the end of the day, this exoneration is another moment where the social structure trying to hide its hand continues to try to have us focus on the wrong thing. Now there's a whole, there's, a, there's everything else to say. Maybe we'll talk about it in, in office hours as it relates to the nation and its role because the, clearly members of the nations did that. And they had, and they had, they had these squads. The squad from Philly came down here to DC and killed all them cats right over here on 16th Street. The Hanafis, who when the brother had gone out, remember that Kareem Abdul Jabbar had bought them a house. The house is still right over here, maybe maybe six blocks from where I'm sitting right now. And so I'm saying I have to say that this governance conversation we have to have has to be informed by the momentum of memory. It has to help us understand oh oh I this is where i should have i should have i should i want to make sure i do this and i thought about this in terms of ways of knowing the ways of knowing category when it's thinking about say by whether it be a mod Arbery's father and things like that i said you know what it might be nice to start referring to because when we think of uh medu medu is an ancient egyptian word it means speech but it also means writing so metunature, divine speech or divine writing, that's the word the Greeks would call hieroglyphs. So when you see the writing, so what the Egyptians would say, when you communicate in any form, that's speech. 
So if you write it, if you say it, it's speech. We live in a society now where people will value the printed word over the spoken word, but they'll do it because we've been socialized to really have our memories crippled. Remember, that's what we talked about Amadou Hampate Ba, his book. In some societies, when you don't write or writing isn't the privileged thing, you have to remember more. That's why I would rather go to primary sources from people who remember. And better yet than even in the books is when I get to sit with these elders. So you sit with Peter and you will get all the other stuff he remembers. Because like, like Hampate Ba said. So, but if we if all we have is the book, is the testament, then I thought about it in the context of the way of knowing that we have been forced to adapt, many of us in this country, the Christian way of knowing, or even the Muslim way of knowing. And where this text is sacred. So instead of saying, for example, Crusade for Justice, Ida B. Wells, maybe we can just call this the Book of Ida B. Wells. And what would Ida B. Wells say? Well, Ida B. Wells would say this, and this is where I end, whether it be Malcolm in Queens, whether it be Dr. King and them on the March Against Fear, whether it be our people in Kenosha, Wisconsin, or in Georgia, when Ida B. Wells found out that her uh, her friends had been killed and lynched in Memphis. He said, uh, she said, uh, remember the, the Moss, Thomas Moss. Hold on, let me see. Let me see. Yes. She had written that everybody should just leave. Leave Memphis. You can't protect our people. And so she wrote that in her newspaper, the, the, uh, the free speech. Oh, I wish I could find the quote. Hold on. Oh, man. I miss. I miss. I miss. I missed it. Okay. That's all right. Here's 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 what she writes at the hand of a mob. She's talking about T. Thomas Fortune. She's going to be writing for the New York papers now. They've lynched her friends. They killed them. They had the people's grocery. Remember in Memphis. She writes in free speech that you that a Winchester rifle should be above the hearth of everybody. You should find a home. Oh, wait. I know where it is. It's actually in this one, Southern Horrors and Other Lynchings. This is where it is. This is her This is her famous uh, piece that she wrote called uh, Southern Horrors, Lynch Law and All Its Phases, which I encourage people to read. This is what she says. She says, the lesson this teaches, this lynching teaches, and which every Afro-American should ponder well, is that a Winchester rifle should have a place of honor in every black home. And it should be used for that protection which the law refuses to give. When the white man who is always the aggressor, she writing to you, little Kyle. When the white man who is always the aggressor knows he runs as great a risk of biting the dust every time his Afro-American victim does, he will have greater respect for Afro-American life. The more the Afro-American yields and cringes and begs, the more he has to do so. The more he is insulted, outraged, and lynched. That's from the book of Ida. So when she, <laughs> so what was it? So when Ida in her autobiography, she's in New York now. She leaves. She's, she's traveling. When they burn her printing press to the ground, and her friends are like, "You can't go back." She said, "No, I'm going back." This is what happened. She says, "Mr. Fortune met me in Jersey City. This is T. Thomas Fortune. According to the agreement, he greeted me with, "Well, we've been a long time getting you to New York, but now you are here. I'm afraid you will have to stay." I can't see why that follows," said I. "Well," he said, "from the rumpus you have kicked up." I feel assured of it. Oh, I know it was you because it sounded just like you. Ida says, will you please tell me what you're talking about? 
Haven't you seen the morning paper, he replied. I told him no. He handed me a copy of the New York Sun where he had marked an Associated Press dispatch from Memphis. The article stated that on acting on an editorial from the commercial appeal of the previous Monday morning, a committee of leading citizens had gone to the office of the free speech that night, run the business manager, J.L. Fleming, out of town, destroyed the type and furnishings of the office, and left a note saying that anyone trying to publish this paper again will be punished with death. The article went on to say that the paper was owned by Ida B. Wells, a former school teacher who was traveling in the North. Watch this. She says, although I had been warned repeatedly by my own people that something would happen if I did not cease harping on the lynching of three months before, I had expected that happening to come when I was at home. I had bought a pistol the first thing after Tom Moss was lynched because I expected some cowardly retaliation from the lynchers. I felt that one had better die fighting against injustice than to die like a dog or a rat in a mm. trap. <laughs> That's from the book of Ida. <laughs> yeah, I went and got a pistol. So... We can say less on that. No, well, I keep her over my shoulder as a reminder of what my yes. my responsibility is. And uh, I just want to, um, I, I didn't get a chance to enjoy this class the way I'd like to. Um, and part of it is because I got, I think, complacent because we have Nubia and I had so much wonderful, you know, I, I, I forgot that Nubia is not the real world yet. And so we haven't been live on YouTube. We had the chat open. You don't know this, but um, we had a targeted assault, which, and I want to apologize to everyone. Oh, Nubia? No, never in Nubia. Right. Uh, never in Nubia. Never in Nubia. Mm -mm. On YouTube. Oh, and good. Welcome. Yeah. I mean, you know. <laughs> Welcome. I, I'm not going to give it too much oxygen, but to say um, what we've built in Nubia with, through narrative, which is the only way you can get in. And it's that way so that we don't have to deal with social structure-ish, that we don't have to deal with trolls, and we don't have to deal with people whose ideology is destructive. Yes. Um, yeah. We created that space. And I want to say this very um, with full-throatedly. Yes. Narrative Anubia for people who want to live in a better place, but also who are willing to build it. You got to be, yeah. For, and, and, and coming into this space, I ask people to bring their brick, but please bring a full brick don't come in with your brokenness. It's fine. We all have broken parts okay. of ourselves. We're all flawed. But leave those flawed things to your therapist. Work, <laughs> that, work that ish out, you know, and with fear and trembling, wherever you need to do that. But come to Nubia with the understanding that we are literally building the world we want to live in. And that requires all of us to come. No question. With that in mind, you may have feelings. Feelings are good. And I'm talking to everybody right now, you know, yeah. feelings are good. Feelings are good, but, but don't muddy the waters. We're, we're pouring clean glasses. Come with a clean glass, come with a clean brick, come mm -hmm. with the ability, with all your abilities and the things that you're going to bring to this table and leave the trash to YouTube and other places and Twitter and Facebook, leave the trash out. Mm -hmm. You know, let's come to do that. Um, I want to welcome from uh, YouTube for the first time ever uh, live uh, Accra, Burgett, uh Nuro Panin from Accra, Ghana. Said, so happy to be here. My first time I've caught this live. Welcome. And and come Ooh. home. Come on home to Nubia Narrative. Like, if you know, this is not a spectator sport. No. You, you can't sit on the sidelines because we need all hands on deck. And the things that we need to talk about, unfettered and uninterrupted uh, by other people's whims and, and, and uh, smallness and insecurities and weakness, Mm. Mm. No, we, we need to do that. So I'm, I'm, sl I'm slightly angry. 
No, no, don't but be. I'm, don't but be. I'm contained. I'm hey, contained. You know no, let me not do that. Let me not do that. Yes, please be. Yeah, I'm angry. Uh, yeah, we need I'm that. Contained. We need that. We need that. We need that. Because because everybody can't be. We all stay angry at times, but you have the gift of being able to cycle it out, and so we can tap it. Because some people hold on to it. And in fact, when you said that, when somebody new from Ghana, welcome. Uh, I think in Tree they would say, "Well, Hutchison." Like, how, how are you? I think the right answer is Mohoye, but I'm not sure. You may, you may type, type it in the chat. But it reminds me of somebody who the public never saw angry, but Ozzy Davis once saw him when he didn't think anybody was looking, and he said he had the saddest look on his face that I'd ever seen. That was Louis Armstrong, who Kwame Nkrumah invited to come live in Ghana. Remember, because he he and Dr. King and Ms. King both, all they all went over Du Bois. The voices went. But the voice of them went to stay. They stayed. I wanted, yeah. Yeah, but I wanted to, this is from Carl Evans' book, The Judas Factor, The Plot to Kill Malcolm X. I just mentioned it. But the last page of the book, after Evans goes through all these people who die, man, we didn't even talk about, and, and I won't now, I just mentioned it for y'all want to look it up. Louis Lomax, who wrote a book on Malcolm when the world is get word is given. Fox wanted to make a movie of it, but they got into a back and forth because James Baldwin was writing a script for uh, I think it was Paramount or Universal and so neither of the movies ever got made James Earl Jones they did make a movie in 1972 on Malcolm which is based on the autobiography because Betty had contracted with them and she let the exclusive rights go to them and they made a movie in 1972 there's Gil Noble who did a documentary on the assassination you can go find it on YouTube what you saw with Karen what you played is part of a clip from some of that footage Carl Evans goes through how all these people end up dying mysteriously because one of the things that Lomax's script that he showed to Fox had was the federal involvement. He said, yeah, these hands may have done it, but let me be very clear that Louis Lomax, the brakes went out on his car. He's from Columbus, Georgia. He knew Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. He died shortly thereafter in an automobile accident. Carl Evans goes through all the different people that died who were close to saying the federal government was involved in a lot of things. And then does that mean that the feds kill him? I'm going to put it this way. You should read everything for yourself and try to think. This ain't like, oh, yes. think, you know, but 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 I wanted to end. This is where he says, he says, as in, this is the last uh, paragraph of his book. He says, in the years following the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, jazz impresario Louis Armstrong spoke with Ghana's Kwame Nkrumah on any number of occasions. This is what made me think about it. Welcome from Ghana. On one of Armstrong's most enthusiastic fans, Nkrumah had extended an invitation to the jazz legend to teach music at Ghana universities, just as he had earnestly earlier rolled out the red carpet for the W.B. Du Bois. Two days after the death of Leon 4X Amir, and he was one of the cats that died under mysterious circumstances who was connected to telling the truth on Malcolm's assassination, Armstrong accepted Nkrumah's offer, effectively renouncing his American citizenship. He had been unhappy with America for years and had probably been convinced by Nkrumah that the U.S. government had murdered Lumumba. On March 16th, 1965, this is less than a month after Malcolm was assassinated, while visiting Vienna, Armstrong announced that he would live in Ghana upon his pending retirement. Last line of the book, quote, it's the country of my ancestors, end quote, Armstrong said, comma, quote, and I like it there, end quote. Now, of course, he, he ended up changing his mind, but what? But but you'll never see that in no Ken Burns document. They always try to make us, <laughs> oh yeah, in America. Now nah, go see what the man said. Pop said, "It's the it's country of my ancestors, and I like it there." I'm I'm gonna read something that I read on somebody's uh, uh pen tweet. 
Negroes who say we romanticize our Africans should try falling in love with something other than their former masters for a change. Yikes. Uh, that's on, yeah, that's on your, oh, your yeah, uh, yeah. page. That's pinned up there. I, let's, let's, at some point, we I want to discuss that that uh, poem that you uh, put on your twin uh, yeah. tw on your Twitter page. Um, and and guess what, y'all uh, who are in Nubia, you already know this, but Dr. Carr holds office hours, which has turned into something really incredible. Ooh, I'm I'm yeah. simply a spectator in that, you know. Uh, I, I love sitting back and watching and getting to enjoy oh. something that I didn't get to do today. This amazing lesson, uh, but that office hours that you have and the people that come in, where it's just an open forum for folks to ask questions and engage, yes. it's beautiful, exclusively in Nubia, and tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Tomorrow, Dr. Sanyata Amin, 10 a.m. Eastern in Nubia, yes. because we got to get our health together. And she is doing all of the things. She's going to be talking about Thanksgiving as well and, and different things that we can do to stay oh, healthy through the yeah. holiday season. And go ahead, say that one thing on I Thanksgiving. Should, I should, I should, okay. I should. Okay, I, I'm going to do this quick. Cause I'm, I don't it's fine. We, I knew we were going to take time today because no, we got but, time. No, but we won't. I promise we won't. We won't because Thanksgiving ain't worth <laughs> one way of thinking about no one way of thinking about Thanksgiving is I think remember those Africana studies categories are categories that apply to any community of human beings. Social structure, who are those people to the structure they find themselves in, governance, who are they to each other, ways of knowing how do they understand the world, science and technology, how do they adapt or use or invent ways to interact with their environment? Um uh, movement and memory, how as they move through time and space, do they remember? these experiences they've had, cultural meaning making, what kind of cultural texts and practices do they create in that moment? So those categories apply to any group of humans. We develop them as Africana studies categories because in the societies and the social structures we find ourselves in over the last 500 years of expanding European colonialism and settler colonialism, we find ourselves in constructs that dehumanize us. And there's no way to really, as Jacob Carruthers and Anderson Thompson and the folks out of Chicago used to say, fight our way back into history without displacing. You can't reform that system. You can't reform it by changing a date from 1787 to 1619 or 1776. No, all those numbers line up in a dehumanizing social structure. So putting some color in it only reinforces its power to keep us in the hierarchy. Anyway, Thanksgiving, you can think about it almost as a form of pan-European cultural meaning-making. And then you can think of the holiday itself as movement and memory. And then how does that tie? Well, very quickly, think about it in three separate and related uh, kind of acts. If it's a three-act play, Thanksgiving, act one, the actual crime itself. <laughs> that's when that's when them, uh, them white nationalists showed up. Because guess you, we know that that group the English separatists, that's who they call themselves. It wasn't everybody, it was about 100 people got on that boat in England in September uh, 1620 and came over to what is now what they call the Plymouth Bay Colony. About a third of those people were English separatists. They had relocated earlier uh, to and then spent about almost 10 years there and then back from uh, the Netherlands. They were in Amsterdam, they were in Leiden. These are religious fanatics that broke from the Church of England. Because remember, the Church of England had been founded a few decades before because Henry VIII wanted to break with the Catholic Church. And so the Anglican Church, the Church of England had broken away. But these people said, we don't even like that. We need to get farther away from the Catholics. I mean, there's a lot of religious intolerance going on. So these people were called in England the separatists, the English separatists. They're on the boat. 
because they don't promise to come over to North America and make, you know, a uh, colony and then pay off the debt they owe to finance them getting there in stuff they grow and fishing and farming and cutting down timber and all this kind of thing. Well, you ask yourself, if they're pioneers, how did they know there was something over here to do it? Because the Europeans have been here. Mm -hmm. They thought they were going to Jamestown. At first, remember that's 1607, 1608. Jamestown at that point ran from the south all the way up the eastern seaboard. Virginia it did, not Jamestown, Virginia. But when they landed, they couldn't find a good place to land. That's what they landed. They came close to um, a village that was no longer occupied by the Wampanoag people. Why? Because Europeans who had come before, among other things, had spread disease. And so many Native Americans, what we now call uh, New England, had been wiped out by disease because of contact with the Europeans that they thought they were landing somewhere. And it wasn't no rock they bumped into, no damn Plymouth Rock, whatever. But the point is, where they landed was a good place with water and ample supply of water and everything. They were. And codfish. How about that? Codfish, Cape Cod. That's exactly right. So that's Act 1. Now, of course... As they're negotiating with these human beings who are already here, they find somehow, and William Bradford writes about it. Y'all go see Bradford. Bradford is the one who starts talking about pilgrims too early on, but they ain't known as pilgrims. They come in contact with this indigenous brother named Tisquantum. But of course, the social structure knows him as Squanto. He speaks perfect English. Oh man, you're a genius. You, you just heard us talking and picked up the language. No, bro. Maybe about five, six years ago, some of your cousins came. Remember Captain John Smith? They kidnapped my ass and, and took me to England. <laughs> he was enslaved by these, these Englishmen. He learned English in London. Comes back to uh North America to new it's what becomes New England and heads up and he's the one who kind of shows them how to survive. So by the fall of 1621. They're getting meals, fish, and you know, they this kind of thing. They know how to, but guess what? That first winter was hard. About half of the hundred died. And guess what happened? Y'all can read it for yourself. Go read, uh, uh, go read Bradford. Well, if you ain't got nothing to eat, you don't know how to fish. This quantum trying to help you. You can't farm. He's trying to show you how to farm. But that first winter didn't hit because remember, they got here in November. So it's about to be winter. He ain't got time yet. I ain't planting no stuff. So as they die, they start having to punish each other. Why? Because you look around and be like, well, we buried so-and-so. Wait, what? what's that dirt doing up off the ground? Hey, hey, what you eating? Yeah. So, you think when you're sitting down to your meal, just realize the first meal, many of them religious fanatics ate was each other. So, we, <laughs> so, so act oh, one, I mean, I'm hey, everybody got to survive, right? Ain't no thing. Uh, later on, uh, you see the chief of the uh, Wampanoag who are in conflict with other uh, Native Americans who are around, who also don't want contact with the Europeans, but the chief of the, uh, of the Wampanoag is trying to make deals with the Europeans because the Europeans have entered a field of violence that in many ways their entry started. So you see this, this fight by the time you get to King's, King Philip's War. I mean, it's the whole consequence. But anyway, let's bring that to a close because they do have a meal within a year. But that's probably where they mythologize. But let's fast forward. Let's fast forward to the 19th century. By the 1820s, the 200th anniversary of this, they have morphed into, because Bradford was writing, into this notion of these these religious freedom seekers who were looking for safe harbor. And Daniel Webster at a 200th anniversary of them landing calls them the Pilgrim Fathers. And the name sticks because it's been floating around. These are the English separatists. They call religious fathers now, you know. Anyway, uh, Pilgrim Fathers. With uh, in that same 1820s, 
you have a woman, this name is very important, Sarah Joseph Hale. Sarah Joseph Hale becomes prominent in the 1820s. And within 10 years, by 1830, she becomes the editor of a journal called Godey's uh, Lady Book. She stays that editor for 40 years until the 1870s. You, Everybody here knows uh, Sarah Joseph Hale. You know why? Because she wrote a poem in 1830 that everybody knows. The name of her poem, she titled that poem, Mary's Lamb. Ah. Yeah, we all know Mary had a little lamb. That's Sarah Joseph Hale. She helped raise money to preserve Bunker Hill in Boston. She helped raise money to preserve George and Martha Washington's plantation, Mount Vernon. She was obsessed with national identity. And she said, Thanksgiving should be a national holiday. It should be a national holiday. She kept badgering presidents for years. Finally, 1863, I should pause here to say that during the Civil War, guess what? Most of the states and territories in the United States and in the Confederacy celebrated Thanksgiving. Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederate States of America, gave two Thanksgiving proclamations during the time of the Confederacy. Why? Because Thanksgiving does not conflict with white nationalism. It is absolutely a white nationalist holiday in the imagination. They're celebrating killing and taking land. So she finally gets the ear of Lincoln. In the fall of 1863, September 1863, in fact, she writes and General, uh, General, my God, Secretary of State Seward drafts a response that Lincoln adopts and Lincoln proclaims Thanksgiving a national holiday in the fall of 1863 because he said it's going to help with the healing. Because remember, 1863, just before that was Gettysburg. They done lost all these people. All these people then died. Everybody who died was American, including all the black people who were fighting for their own freedom in the U.S. colored troops. But I'm saying to say Thanksgiving was seen as a way to build this national identity. Now, that's Act 2. Let's bring that to a close. Now, Act 3. This is the one that affects all of us. And I love Act 3 the best. Act 3 begins in the 1920s. The first store to really celebrate what they called the Christmas parade was not in New York. We're going to come to New York in about three minutes. It was Philly. Now, remember, uh, what was that movie that all people be watching and projecting ourselves onto? I mean, I won't speak for all of y'all. Uh, what's that one? It was black and white, then they keep remaking it every few years. Uh, the little girl, her, her, her mama work at Macy's and... <laughs> miracle on 34th Street? Miracle! A miracle! It's a miracle on 34th Street. It's a miracle on 30th. It's a miracle. Some of y'all right now are holding your breath because you love that movie. Is Santa Claus real? Is the white man coming out of your chimney in a home invasion and not getting shot and giving out gifts that you bought yourself and having your children believe, as my man Naeem Akbar used to say, that a white man gave you something that your own parents bought for you and you gonna let that man get credit after he had a home invasion at your house? Is he real? Chris Kringle. Yes, sir. St. Nicholas. That's a whole nother story. We'll get to that in a minute. In fact, yeah, Christmas. Don't worry. We know how black people celebrate Christmas in culture meaning making. We know how black people celebrate Christmas in ways of knowing. It ain't got nothing to do with that. Y'all get y'all a little taste of what you like. You get to, we used to have a hi-fi. Now you just turn on your Alexa, whoever you got, and you put on, have yourself a merry little Christmas. 
Oh, yeah. You get that Lou Rawls. Well, uh, here we are as in olden days. You black people, you know, we, we got a whole nother thing. Just like we got a whole nother Thanksgiving thing. We coming to that. So in the 1920s, Gimbal's is first. But in the movie, I think like they put Gimbal. Is it Gimbal's they put as the rival to Macy's in the movie? I don't forget. It's been many years since I've seen. But this is the department store wars. And that is the third act that we call Thanksgiving. It ain't got nothing to do with no turkeys. It ain't got nothing to do with no Jesus. And here's where we go. R.H. Macy in New York opens the flagship store at 34th. And what happens? You know who's working at Macy's in the 1920s? Who is overrepresented in the Macy's staff? All these European immigrants. All these European immigrants who have come to the United States, you know the story they tell, the Ellis Island crew, all that kind of thing, and the store is closed on Thanksgiving. Well, guess what? One of the reasons why I used to love to go to New York on Thanksgiving Day is the world don't celebrate Thanksgiving. It's a white nationalist American holiday. So you can always get a great Indian meal. You can go to Chinese. I mean, people ain't <laughs> Thanksgiving. The hell, giving thanks for shit. <laughs> so you got all these European immigrants. And on the day of Thanksgiving, I'll never forget many, many, many years ago, many years ago, what am I saying? Maybe 25, 20, close, maybe closer to 23, 24 years ago. I was in LA uh, on the campus of Charles Drew Medical Center. My friend Nzinga Radabisha Heru, the, the, the ancestor now, is president of the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations, had asked me to come out. We had our conference, our regional conference, Western Regional Conference. And I and I told people about this. We were talking about this. I've been researching it because the, the story blew my mind. And we had this long conversation. We stayed up all night in Zynga's house after the thing, talking, whatever. And then that next morning, that was Saturday night, that next morning, at about seven o'clock in the morning, her doorbell rings and she she said, OK, I'm getting ready to go to sleep. Who was at the door? All these children who want me to teach them meta nature. Now, I done had gay election and stayed up all night talking about it. And they all sitting there, we all sitting in her living room and I'm showing them how to do the unilaterals. I'm saying I, that that is one of my most treasured memories because a couple just two of those little two of those children. Uh, one is now a neurosurgeon. Mm. And the other is a professor of linguistics. <laughs> and you I know I'm just thinking they were sisters, actually, the Thomas family, uh, mm. the, the, Amy and Debbie Thomas, this thing, but they were little girls back. And then we eventually went to Kim. I mean, it's a whole nother thing. But anyway, it started with that story. So here's the rest of the story. So these European immigrants on Thanksgiving, they bring their foods from their native countries. They even some of them dress up in some of the clothes that they would normally wear for their ritual days. But they're doing it in the store and around the store because, you know, they don't Thanksgiving. What's the day off? Let's let's cook it. Macy's has an idea. And in 1924. To celebrate the opening of the new store, at Herald Square, 34th. We're going to have a parade. We will have a parade. We will parade around a couple of blocks, lead people to the front of this brand new flagship Macy's store. We're getting ready to be the biggest. It's the Walmart of the 1920s. We're about to build the biggest joint. Hey, thanks for the Philly example. These, these immigrants, I mean, you with costumes and this is great. I call them costumes. Right? Come on in now. And then when they let off the last act in the parade, he sits on top of the marquee and on a golden throne. And, and presides over what they called the Christmas parade. Now, everyone knows, everyone knows who is the last act in every Thanksgiving parade. Presana, who's, who's the last person in the parade? Who's the last float? 
Santa? Of course. Yeah. Okay. As my man, as my man is Shaka Musa Barashango, Reverend Barashango out of Philly in volume one of his African people and European holidays, a mental genocide. He has a little chapter in there called Santa or Satan, but that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> in this instance, here's where, this is why Klaus is last in the parade. After all the balloons, after all the spectacles and the marching bands. In fact, the Macy's parade this year, this year, the parade will feature, let me get my numbers right, 15 character balloons, 28 floats, 800 clowns, 36 novelty balloons, 10 bands. I've gone to the Macy's Parade many times. One year, years ago, I drugged my mama up there. My mama, my brother, my niece, these little girl. I went in to see what I why I go to the Macy's Parade. You know why I go to the Macy's Parade? Because every balloon in that parade is a commercial. Every float just about is a commercial. And what you see is, and you've been for, so he go to the street, and coming down the street, the first line, children. A lot of more children, you know, adult stuff, but mainly children. Then you come back, their parents. Come in. Then you come back, and this sometimes you go seven, eight rows deep, pressed up against the damn skyscrapers, watching. Here comes Snoopy. Here comes Phyllis the Cat. Phyllis the Cat was the first balloon in the 20s, the first big balloon. Anyway, he's one of them legacy balloons. They say legacy balloons, these are joints been in there so long, you don't get rid of them. But what, what I watch is, and, and now, of course, it's different because you can do it with cell phone technology. Early on, I had a little portable TV. Because what I'm I'm getting as close as I can to the corner of 34th and 8th right there. Because I'm looking at Al Roker. I'm looking at, and I'm watching the cameras go up and down. When they go up, this is what's being broadcast to the world. When they come down, this is commercial break. So guess what? When they up, it's the money balloons. It's the floats. And I'm listening to the children. They go Clifford the Big Red Dog. They go the Comfy Couch. They go Susu. And each one of them balloons, each one of them floats is tied to something to buy in the store. So when the when the cameras go down, here comes the uh 80-piece podunk high school marching band out of Jesus Christ, <laughs> Iowa that sold cookies for 50 years to get here. You're not going on TV. They got a slap about two of y'all. <laughs> but when the cameras go back up, Macy's is beaming a commercial to the entire world and the last act. After Up With People, after Mary J. Blige or whichever hip hop artist they're going to have on a float singing, the last act is Klaus. And Klaus is waving to y'all. He's saying, bye, bye, except he don't spell it B-Y-E, spells it B-U-Y. Because the <laughs> next day is Black Friday. R.H. Macy understood. As we end where we begin, you've been had, you've been took. You've been bamboozled, run amok. He's, he understood before the social media, before technology changed the game, that this is the biggest commercial for the opening of the Christmas season that could ever be invented. I want to thank you, European immigrants, for giving me this idea. And now we about to turn this into a whole commercial. And Santa Claus ain't got nothing to do with no tree, no evergreen tradition and the pagan Christian, uh, pagan European spiritual traditions that the Christians had to incorporate ain't got nothing to do with the birth of Christ. This is all about bring your ass here and drag my store from the red to the black in 24 hours. So everybody in here now, it's getting ready to ball up your fist and get into a fist fight at 12.01 a.m. in a Walmart in some place in this country. I want y'all to understand it was all by design. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Just, On that note. Uh, oh, man. Anyway. I just, <laughs> thank. Listen, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. I will see you in office hours on Monday, yeah. uh, which is oh. 7 p.m. Eastern. What? Oh, oh you're going to do it? You know what? what? I just you know The what? holidays. 
I meant to say that. No, no, it ain't the holiday. It ain't the holiday. It's um, we got the embongi. Remember, we supposed to have the embongi last week, so we might have to move it up, either up or down. We we we, we had to send some out because the high. If you're a high school, I'm glad you said. If you're a high school student in anywhere in the world, the Philadelphia Freedom Schools, particularly my young sisters, my man uh, Sharif El Mekki and them, we have uh the monthly embongi. We supposed to do it last uh month. But they 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 postponed it. But now it's open to anybody. In fact, I'll post that in Nubia. So maybe we might have to move it up because I think it I think it starts at seven. All right, we got our notification system tight now. It's so tight, tight. So that's good. So that's good. That's good. And we even are preserving the chat. So we got that being done. So we tight we tightening. You know, this is this is an evolution. Y'all is literally watching something develop in real time. For those of you who have never built anything, this is what it looks like to build yes. something from absolute <laughs> idea to fruition. It's been, uh, it. you know, narrative has, hasn't even been a year uh, and Nubia is less than three months and it's already, uh, we got our first um, fat fight in there that got handled and we're about <laughs> to have a council of elders. Yeah, uh, that's gonna, yeah it's just, it's, 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 um, it's a life's work, you know, and it is something that is it. my yeah, pleasure. Honey. I'm yeah. looking at this, my man, Alan Flagg from LA. I'm coming back, brother Flagg, even when I come back to LA. Somebody said, you say body your money, B-Y-E. Who is this? Said Venus said Black Friday is Fight Club in America. It has turned into that, hasn't it? It is. It is. It is. You know what? <laughs> and let, let me shout out um, Gerald uh, Gerald McGee Jr. who reminded us that today is Paulie Murray's birthday, and we've done a whole chat, a whole discussion, a whole class on Paulie Murray. So y'all can go back in the archives to find that and go and, find uh, it. In fact, one of the books that they don't mention in the documentary, since I have it here, we talked about this extensively. This is Volume One. Number one, hey, the Ghanaians even love this. The Constitution and Government of Ghana, Pauli Murray. Pauli Murray was the co-author of this. The, she, she taught at the law school in Ghana. Oh, Lord, signed it. That's beautiful. So the point is, the, the, the whole point is that Pauli Murray, the beast, if y'all want to listen about her and have conversation, come on over with us because we talked about it. We sure did. Yeah. We sure did. All right, well, let's, uh, happy uh, Friendsgiving, family giving. Absolutely. That, that, yeah, Thanksgiving. Cause we, love you. yep, love you too. That ain't got nothing to do with what we do, right? No. We got love our you. own, yeah. I'm just telling y'all the background. Yeah, love you. All right, see y'all next week. <laughs>